This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. been very blessed to do very well to do very well in the ratings uh, not just in New York but in a lot of other cities around the country where we're doing well and I've occasionally been asked what is it what is it that you do what is it that you do on your show that makes it so successful and I really hate that question because sometimes you just don't know what makes something work, right? I mean, what makes a movie fun? What makes a movie good? What makes it interesting? What makes a song um, one that you want to sing along to? It's one of those things, sort of like the Supreme Court's definition of pornography. We know it when we see it, right? So in any event, I hate the question, and I have no idea how to answer it. That being said, if I were to pick one thing that I think we do that makes us uniquely successful. And I say us because it really is kind of a team effort. You got Alex Barnard, you got uh, you got Matt Blaze, you got what's his name who answers the phones. We're all pitching in here. But the the thing that I do think we do is we find the subjects that are not being talked about on any other talk show and talk about them. Or at the very least, we'll try and talk about subjects that other talk shows are talking about and talk about them in a very different way. And the sort of corollary to that is we don't do the same eight subjects that you hear on every other talk show. For instance, you know, I don't think I've said in the three years that I've been here, I don't know that I've said the words Hunter Biden more than twice. So... The point is, that, and I'm not judging any shows that do it, my view is that if there's going to be a subject, whatever the subject is, that's going to be covered by 10, 12, 14 hours of programming, what else can I add that hasn't already been said? And sometimes that really upsets the audience, right? Sometimes you guys, you, you, especially if it's something in my wheelhouse. Now, uh, ostensibly, some of you think that I know a little something about politics or a little something about the law. And I think you guys give me too much credit. But a lot of times when there's a big hot button political issue or a legal issue in the news and I choose to talk about something totally removed from that, a lot of times people are upset. And it reminds me, I used to kind of wonder, oh, am I doing the right thing here in getting these people upset with me? They're writing to management. They're, uh, they're, they're clicking off the radio. And it used to worry me. Not anymore. Now I look to upset you. I look for the moments when you want to hear me do X and I do Z. Not even Y, but Z. And the best corollary that I can give you to this is from the world of pro wrestling. Okay. Stay with me. Stay with me. There was a wrestler years ago 
by the name of Mick Foley. And Mick Foley wrestled under WCW in WCW as uh, Cactus Jack. And he left WCW and a six-figure salary at a time when he had a young family. He went to a much smaller wrestling federation called ECW, Extreme Championship Wrestling. And what they did, their whole thing was hardcore wrestling, right? And what that meant was they would do uh, chair shots to the head, a lot of blood, not a lot of technical wrestling, all about illegal maneuvers, illegal foreign objects, all sorts of things of that nature. Very painful, very real, very bloody, very dangerous. And there is nobody, with the maybe the possible exception of Terry Funk, that participated in hardcore wrestling more effectively than Mick Foley. So Mick Foley, as Cactus Jack, that was his character, goes to ECW, takes a big pay cut to go, and risks injury day in and day out. He would get body slammed on thumbtacks. This is a man who lost his ear in the ring. I'm not joking. He actually, this is not a bit... He lost his ear in the ring. There's no telling how many, um, how many teeth he lost over the years. He broke his nose. He's broken many, almost every bone in his body in the ring. He would get trash cans uh, slammed over his head. He would get thrown from on top of steel cages into the, onto the floor. He would get body slammed uh, onto tables, suplexed onto tables. You get what I'm saying, right? He was th- a... Not just a hardcore wrestler. He was the hardcore wrestler. And he knew that when he was in ECW, the audience wanted to see him do these hardcore things because he was great at it. And he decided in one of the most brilliant wrestling maneuvers of all time in terms of storyline that he wasn't going to do that anymore. He decided as part of a bit, basically, that he was no longer going to be hardcore. He was no longer going to be wacky. He was no longer going to be going to be crazy. He was no longer going to be body slammed into uh, tables and uh, thrown off steel cages. Instead, he became his way of becoming a villain or doing what they call in wrestling a heel turn to the hardcore fans was to instead become the most normal person in the world. Not just a vanilla Casper Milk Toast pro wrestler, but a Milk Toast Milk Toast pro wrestler. Instead of these promos where you wondered where whether he was insane or not, where he's shouting bang bang at the camera, looking like an escaped mental patient. Instead, he's doing promos with his infant son or toddler son in front of a Christmas tree and acting like your prototypical Family man, something like this. <laughs> Happy hardcore holidays, everybody. This is Cactus Jack and the rest of the bullies. Here to wish you a happy holiday hardcore season. You know, I took this time today to kind of explain what Christmas means to me. And by golly, I found out that Christmas can mean a lot of different things. First off, Christmas can be fun. <laughs> well, just the other day, there were some Christmas carolers, and I kind of snuck up on their little group. And as the door opened, they began to sing. I started chanting, ECW, ECW, ECW. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I would have gotten away with it, too, except all the neighbors heard me saying, bye-bye. <laughs> as I ran out of the neighborhood.
neighborhood, but you know, they didn't care. They just nutty cactus jack, and I'll tell you what, they realized it doesn't hurt to have a hardcore person in the neighborhood. That was from 1995, and the reason it's so brilliant and the reason it's so funny is because as the ECW fans would watch that on TV, they would be screaming at their television set. They'd be crying that their hardcore hero is sitting there in front of a Christmas tree holding a child being wholesome. That's not what Cactus Jack does. He gets beaten up. He gets his ear removed in the ring. So I can't tell you, as soon as this Trump verdict came out yesterday— in the, uh, I guess it was in the afternoon, I said, all right, well, uh, we're in for 10 straight hours of this coverage in the world of talk radio. I'm not doing it. Not going to do it. And I know people want to hear my opinion. I know they want to hear me talk about it. But you know what? I'm going to do a Cactus Jack. I am going to talk about alien abductions taking place at defunct Atlantic City casinos during wrestling matches while the abductees are eating cheese. That's what I'm doing uh, as we discuss what order people open their mail in. That's what I'm doing. And I was determined to do it. Determined. But I said, you know what? The audience puts up with a lot. Management puts up with a lot, and uh, they've given me all these opportunities. And look, I do have a couple of things to say on this uh, Trump situation. Not so much the legal aspect of this, because we're going to have some legal analysts on later in the week, and uh, and a lot are coming on next week who have a very unique take, not only on the Trump situation, but the very possible Hunter Biden charges that may emerge the uh, George Santos charges that are coming about. And I thought uh, Joe Tacopina did a very good job on the Katz and Cosby radio show yesterday. Joe Tacopina is uh, Donald Trump's attorney. You've probably seen him on every radio show there is, every TV show that there is, talking about um, some of the things that were in this trial that shouldn't have been in this trial, some of the things that were not able to be included in the trial that should have been. And uh, here's Joe Tacopina on Katz and Cosby last here's night. Here's what I think the jury got over. There was a lot of stuff that was led in this case that had nothing to do with this case. The Access Hollywood tape being the, the worst and then the most important thing. And that tape was played, I don't know, feels like 100 times in that trial. It was played at least five times. And it's, you know, it's it's not the president's best moment. And, you know, it was, uh, he said it was locker room talk. He apologized for it. But it's, you know, it's it's a crude tape. And it's something that this, this jury, you know, uh, obviously reacted to. We saw them react to it. Um, and And but still. It has nothing to do with the claim of this lady, Eugene Carroll. And this judge never should have left that into the case. There's a rule in federal court called 403. It's a balancing test on, on, on the issue of prejudicial evidence. And, and this is the most prejudicial of them all. And yet somehow this was let in. And uh, Takapin is going to be on a whole bunch of radio shows today, including my friend Sid Rosenberg in the New York area. So I'm not going to get into the legal issues. We'll save those for another day. Uh, just from the legal perspective, I, I don't like to question jury verdicts because I think juries are the best system we have, and sometimes they make the wrong decision. But I think uh, most of the time they emer- they they get to the right decision. They are limited by the evidence they hear in court. They are limited by the judge's instruction, and there will be an appeal. Uh, I think just from a legal perspective, here are the two mistakes, and it's easy to Monday morning quarterback. But I think here are the two mistakes that. Trump and Trump's team made in this trial. One, Trump did a very poor job in that deposition. If you read the descriptions of the definition, the the deposition, the two glaring mistakes that he made 
are after saying the uh, plaintiff in this case, E. Jean Carroll, was not his type, he then confused an old photo of her with his ex-wife, Marla Maples. So, uh, obviously, if Marla... And they do look alike. At least they did in the early to mid-1990s. Obviously, if Marla Maples was his type, a woman that looks exactly like Marla Maples looked in the early 90s would conceivably be his type. But then... His the other thing he did in the uh, deposition that I think really hurt him is kind of the attitude that he took when discussing the Access Hollywood tape when he said uh, in words or substance about uh, you can grab women in such a manner, you know, the Access Hollywood tape. And he says, when you're a star, they let you do it when he uses the phrase fortunately or unfortunately it comes across as so tone deaf. And I think you have a lot of jurors that kind of want to take someone down a notch that says, well, what do you mean, fortunately or unfortunately? But here's the other mistake that, uh, that I think the Trump team made here. Because I don't think this case ever should have been brought. They had to basically change the law to allow this case from 27 years ago to be uh, brought. And I, uh, I, th- I think there's a reason we have statutes of limitations. Evidence degrades over time. Uh, pe- memories fade. I don't remember what I did 27 days ago, let alone 27 years ago. I also think it sends a very dangerous precedent to other uh, victims of sexual assault, which is to say you should be encouraging these women or people to come forward to the authorities right away, not wait around for, in some cases, decades, and then think you can still get the, uh, some degree of justice. I think it's very, very poor. And shame on the New York State legislature for passing that law that allowed this case to be brought. But the, here's the other mistake that Trump made, I think. This case was a he said, she said. This is the definition of a he said, she said. There's no evidence whatsoever, no physical evidence, no other eyewitness testimony. It is a he said, she said. You have Trump's word and you have Eugene Carroll's word. And the jury is left to evaluate who's telling the truth. That's what their job was here. And they came up with a verdict that is just ridiculous. They found that he didn't commit rape, but he committed sexual assault. I mean, it's just, it makes no sense. I mean, it's clearly a compromise verdict. We'll get into the legal issues related to it later in the week. But The mistake Trump made was not testifying. If it's going to be a he said, she said, then you got to testify. You got to say, I didn't do this. And you have to come across credibly. In the absence of him testifying, they're left with only her version. So it's natural that at least a few of the jurors are going to believe her version. So I think that was, if I was advising Trump or if I was Trump, that's how I would have handled it. Now, I hope never to be sued for rape or sexual assault. But if I am, and I I can promise you, I am going to get up on that witness stand and say, no, I did not rape that woman in a department store dressing room. But here's what I want to focus on for the next 10 minutes, and then we're going to go uh, to Dr. Christopher Mott. What are the political ramifications of this? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Normally, if this was a playbook from the 1980s, for instance, you would say that someone that was found liable for 4 or $5 million judgment and found by a jury to have committed sexual assault, you would say that's a, that's a death nail in the world of presidential politics. I'll be honest with you. I don't think it is anymore. 
I don't think it is. I think to some extent Bill Clinton changed the paradigm, and I think Trump really changed the paradigm. In the past few months, you have Donald Trump, who has been indicted on 34 felony counts. He has learned that someone who has worked for him at Mar-a-Lago is cooperating with the federal prosecutors on whether, uh, on whether he took documents he shouldn't have. He has stood trial over a rape charge from 1996. He's defended the Access Hollywood contention that celebrities like him can grab women by their genitals, saying, quote, historically, that's true with stars. That's what he said in the deposition. He's faced rising competition from credible challengers, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott. He has seen a growing likelihood that he will be indicted again in either Georgia or in a federal indictment. And yet, with all of that, And with all the negative coverage of that, his grip over the Republican Party is stronger than ever. And his if you go by the polls, which I'm always skeptical of, his chances of beating President Biden are as high as ever. I'll be honest with you. I think all this coverage, negative as so much of it is, I think this is a repeat of 2016. I think they are giving Trump a load of free publicity. And more importantly, you know who's not on TV right now? Joe Biden or any of the Republican challengers to Trump. Now, once Trump's the nominee, he has, I think, basically a coin flip chance of either winning or not winning the election. And I think he's going to be the nominee. His numbers, he now has a 41-point lead in the primaries. None of this stuff can hurt him, has hurt him. If none of this stuff has hurt him, what's going to hurt him? This man will be the nominee. He may run from a prison prison cell somewhere. I doubt it. But this guy is absolutely going to be the nominee. And then you look at the general election matchup. New poll out this week with him and Biden shows him beating Biden by seven points. Now, I realize we go by state by state and not national polls, but that does not inure well for Biden. And this is sort of what they call the Trump law of inverse reactions, which uh, Axios used. I'm taking that from them. Everything that you would think would hurt him only makes him stronger. At the same time, all of this has happened. He has moved up in the Republican primary, moved up in the general election polls, won a whole bunch of endorsements from House Republicans, including a whole bunch from Ron DeSantis' home state. He's raised $34 million and seen a surge of donations after his indictment. He ran Mike Pompeo, who looked like he was all set to run for president, ran him right out of town in terms of the presidential race. I think Trump is in an incredibly strong position. I think the political effect of this rape case is almost nil and in some perverse way because it keeps Trump on TV and in the newspapers and keeps everybody else off. I think in some ways this actually helps. So whether you're a Trump supporter, a Biden supporter, a DeSantis supporter, or whether you're undecided or whether you support someone else, I'd love to know analytically what do you think your – What do you think the effect of this politically is, of this rape case? I would love to know. 800-848-9222. I was talking to a a woman I know. I'm actually related to her yesterday. 
And uh, I don't know if she says her politics, so I'm not going to out her. But she is kind of a moderate voter. I would characterize her as right-leaning. She's voted for a lot of Republicans. She voted for George W. Bush. And she voted very reluctantly for Donald Trump in 2016. I actually don't know who she voted for in 2020. I think she voted for Trump, but I could be mistaken. And I asked her after this rape case came out, because she's kind of a good sounding board. I said, do you think this is going to affect your vote in 2024? And she said, well, I don't even I don't think I'm going to vote for Trump anyway. But what was the charge? What did the jury find? I said, well, they found that he committed sexual assault, but not rape. And she said, well, that doesn't make sense. And she said, no, it doesn't affect my vote at all. Uh, it's, I, I, my vote is not affected by this. Do you think anybody's is? Years ago, if this was 1984 or 1988, this would have been unthinkable. But I think this is a new era, for better or worse. 800-848-9222. Politically, what do you think the ramifications of this are? 800-848-9222. Got an action pack show for you. Um, Christopher Mott is going to be here in about five minutes. We are going to get his take on the Russia-Ukraine situation. Uh, Next hour, Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of Semaphore, is going to be here. And then Mick West is going to be here in a couple hours. We're going to talk about conspiracy theories, specifically the world of chemtrails. He views himself as a chemtrail debunker. So we'll get into that and uh, have a discussion about that. 800-848-9222. Jerry is in New Jersey. Hello, Jerry. Hi. uh, Trump got... 10 million more votes in 2020, and he was being charged with basically treason, and he still got 10 million more votes. Things like Russia, 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 and Ukraine weren't necessarily decided yet then, remember? Not really. I do. So what, it sounds like you might agree with me that the, the political yeah. effect of this is going Absolutely. to be nil. Nothing on this one. However, there is a big problem coming up. All of these trials, especially the federal trial down in Washington, D.C., that might come Uh, on a January 6th thing, and then a little bit less so, but still the one in Georgia on the voting problem, uh, and probably not Bragg's, but those first two are very dangerous because there's a high probability, unfortunately, that he will get convicted in at least one of these. And that's because the judges in these cases and the juries in these cases are going to be partisan, and they're really going to be saying, do we want Trump as a president? They're going to be electing a, a vote for no. And that's the problem with the political prosecution when you have these things. So they have to get all of these cases into federal court, and we need certiorari. We need four judges to take it up. We got them. You and I talked about this before. And we need the fifth judge, and hopefully, and that's what I'm asking you too tonight, do you think we can get the five judges to say this is more political than uh, criminal is the primary motive when you look at all the evidence. And it's for them to decide. It's not for the pundits to decide. It's for the Supreme Court to decide in this case. Well, yeah, if it ever get, Thank you, Jerry. Appreciate that. Well, yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court is a totally partisan institution. It is not a court, and the justices are not judges. What the Supreme Court is is a ultimate veto council that's just as partisan as any other branch of the legislature. They all pretend they're not, and they may think they're not. They are. And if it ever, if any of these convictions ever make it to the Supreme Court, you will see the conservatives, uh, at least five of them, not uh, uphold any Trump conviction. That's my prediction. But I think we're a long ways away from that. We have to get through an election first, and I think this actually may help it. <laughs> I know it's strange to say, but I really do. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Morning. <laughs> I don't think this is going to hurt Trump, the civil case, 
But I feel the one mistake that Trump made was not showing up to hear the testimony of these people who came to the court, the two other women, plus the the plaintiff herself, because he could have passed notes to his attorney to impeach, which maybe there was a material fact that was not true. Well, yeah, I mean, could have alerted his attorney and impeached her credibility. Well, also, he could have just testified himself and raised those same differences in his testimony. Do you think this helps or hurt Trump politically one way or another? 800-848-9222. And why? Oh, sorry. Lost Margie there. Hey, uh, just as well, Dr. Christopher Mott, research fellow with the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, joins us next. We'll talk about the world of foreign policy, particularly as it relates to this Russia-Ukraine war and where we go from here. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight, while it's very tempting uh, to look at the news and think the whole world has turned into a supermarket tabloid, there are very real conflicts going on right now in the world. And I think one of the ones that has the potential to escalate in a particularly dangerous manner is the uh, situation in Eastern Europe, this Russia-Ukraine conflict, which the United States is very much involved in. One of the best things that I've written, read on this was uh, a, an article I just posted to my Facebook page. You could read it as well. It's from the National Interest a couple of weeks ago. The Democratist War on Diplomacy. And to me, this column asks and answers so many of the right questions. Namely, why is the United States not pursuing and encouraging diplomacy? And why are there authoritarian regimes around the world that have historically enjoyed a very poor reputation? Why are they now becoming the international diplomats? Wait a minute, this used to be the United States' role. 
uh, the author of that, I just linked to it. You can read it if you want. Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. The author of that piece is Dr. Christopher Mott, a research fellow at the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy and the author of the book, The Formless Empire, A Short History of Diplomacy and Warfare in Central Asia. He's kind enough to join us right now. Uh, Dr. Mott, thank you for joining me on the radio. Oh, it's my pleasure. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Uh, So for people who aren't sort of up to date with where we are with the uh, Russia-Ukraine situation right now, what's your analysis of how things stand at this point? Is Russia gaining the upper hand? Is Ukraine gaining the upper hand? Are we at some sort of a a global stalemate here? What's going on? Uh, I would say global stalemate is probably the closest of those options. Uh, I think right now we're waiting uh, with a level of uncertainty to see what will happen with this uh, supposedly uh, coming uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. And I think that's going to kind of determine how people view who is going what way. Uh, obviously, the vast majority of the war takes place in Ukraine, and Russia has a numerical and material advantage. Uh, but at the same time, they have a lot of morale problems, they have a lot of logistical problems, and the Ukrainians are clearly much more motivated because it's on their homeland. Uh, and so there's these kind of wild claims that go back and forth. Though at first it was uh, we were told by the intelligence agencies that Russia would just roll over Ukraine. It would be the most one-sided thing ever. And then Ukraine actually had a much better <laughs> time than the Russians did in the first few months of the war. Uh, and, and then it became a whole, oh, well, uh, the forces of Ukraine will march on Moscow. And so you have this kind of like rapidly oscillating, uh, not very sober analysis. But in the end, what most of it is and what it seems to be right now is a kind of grinding stalemate. Now, um, from the United States' perspective and from the world's perspective more broadly, what do you think the the best case scenario is in terms of how this conflict comes to an end and what's the worst case scenario? Oh, boy. Uh, Well, the worst case scenario is easier to answer because that would be uh, just continuous escalation to the point where uh, the U.S. and the NATO alliance are basically nuclear saber-rattling, and so is Russia. Uh, uh, Russia can barely handle Ukraine in a deadlock, so its uh, ability to conventionally handle uh, the rest of uh, NATO is obviously extremely doubtful, but what one thing they do have is the world's largest nuclear arsenal. So the more desperate they become, the more likely they are to use that. Now, that's mostly going to be a bluff, as most uh, nuclear weapons deployments kind of are. <laughs> they're, they're meant to bluff. Everyone loses if they're unleashed, but the side with more to lose might be the side more likely to uh, really uh, play a game of chicken with that. Uh, so the worst case scenario is just that things escalate even further with countries that are technically, of course, we all know that this is not necessarily the case, but technically not belligerents, right? Countries that are supporting Ukraine without being officially allied to it. Um, as for the best case scenario, that's much harder to pin down because there's, and it depends on who you ask, because uh, someone like me who looks at the, the the whole Russian invasion of Ukraine and says, oh man, you know, like this is, this is horrific. At the same time, I don't think that U.S. interest is uh, served by being so heavily involved in this conflict. But on the personal level, I think, oh, this is really horrific. I really do want the Russians to be, you know, to, to really suffer for, for doing this. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's this kind of uh, bellicosity 
in uh, Washington, D.C., which says that the best case scenario is to roll them out of everything, including the parts of Ukraine that are probably majority pro-Russian. In the case of Crimea, I think almost certainly. And that even if they were to get that best case scenario, what happens when Russia rearms, reequips, comes back in 10, 15 years? But also, more importantly, like it's it's leaving Ukraine with this highly unstable um, region that doesn't want to be there. And that creates a whole new set of problems, too. So, I mean, my personal take on what the best case scenario is, is some kind of negotiated peace that avoids a Korea-style DMZ situation, but at the same time understands that certain parts of Ukraine uh, need to have some kind of either a referendum or whatever to decide where they want to go, while at the same time Russia definitely needs to leave the rest of the country. You, um, people just tuning in, we're talking with Christopher Mott. I just uh, posted his article on my Facebook page in which he delves into some of these articles. You can check it out, facebook.com slash Moranofan. You alluded to diplomacy, which is something that I've been a very big proponent of, and that's what, to me, the most frustrating aspect of this whole war has been, which is that we know how it's going to end. We know Crimea is never going to be part of Ukraine again. We know it's probably unlikely that the ethnic Russian areas of of uh, eastern Ukraine are probably not going to be part of Ukraine again. We know that there's a better than even chance that Ukraine is not going to be a part of NATO. So my view is, from the beginning really, let's facilitate a diplomatic solution to get to the point where we know this is going to end and let's save as much lives and as much treasure and as much property in the meantime. And I will tell you by callers, by emailers, by listeners, by former listeners, by colleagues, anybody that I've put on, guests, myself, callers that have said that, they have uh, been constantly referred to as uh, Chamberlain-like and appeasers. Now, I want you to explain, because you're you're much more educated than I am and much more well-versed on these kind of things than I am, why is that argument, the appeasement argument, fallacious? Why are people like me, and it sounds like you, who may favor a diplomatic end to this conflict, why are we not Neville Chamberlain-style appeasers? Right. Well, uh, if you, the, the whole use of the phrase appeasement is one of the most weaponized and ridiculous uh, tactics in kind of uh, post-war uh, particularly American, but not necessarily always American uh, discourse, particularly when it comes to diplomacy. Uh, appeasement, it, it, first of all, the comparison to Neville Chamberlain is a bit of a weird one because Britain in 1938, when appeasement you know, with Czechoslovakia and the Sudetenland and all that stuff with Hitler happened, Britain was not yet up to war industrial level. It needed to buy time. And what Neville Chamberlain did is he actually bought Britain time to be a bit more prepared for a coming war. So it's not like quite exactly like this 100% cowardice thing that it's presented. I actually wrote an entire piece um, about uh, over a year and a half ago for the American conservative on this hyperfixation with World War II and and the, the early stages of World War II in particular in diplomatic discourse because it's always said that to engage in diplomacy is appeasement, and and World War II is always the example. But what we're seeing right now in the world is a kind of breakdown of the post-war order, which means that World War II is probably one of the least relevant historical examples you could ever find. Uh, we, we are in a world where a lot of multiple people have nuclear weapons, first of all, and can 
exchange them internationally, regardless of their conventional strength. Uh, we, uh, we, therefore, diplomacy is a necessity uh, for the human race. But also, it's this this whole idea that everything comes to a World War II style clash of good versus evil, and that that kind of brushes over the fact that most of these conflicts that we're looking at are far more complicated than that. And uh, it, it's also it ties in kind of like with my more recent democratism piece. It ties in with this maximalist idea that every single conflict that we choose to get involved in is equally important. If you make a concession here, you may as well be selling out your own country. If, if you, if you uh, make any kind of uh, – if you treat a state with a different governing system as an equal, which is actually something that you have to do to engage in diplomacy most time, uh, it's viewed as kind of a surrender of your values. This is a maximalist worldview that says that our way of viewing the world – needs to be universally applied to every single region in the world at all times. <laughs> but of course, this is not what happens. If, if we could have universal political systems and values, we wouldn't really need diplomacy, would we? We would be able to just kind of have a constitutional conference and have everyone come together. But the reality is we have different people who have different values and come from different geographic places with different resource bases, and they have different security concerns. And so every time you're not just blatantly at war with someone, you're inevitably going to have negotiations and you're going to have compromises back and forth. And the rhetoric of appeasement and invoking Neville Chamberlain and this hyperfixation on World War II, which is one event out of many, many, many events in human history, uh, really distorts the narrative of what diplomacy actually is and what it's meant to achieve. I think if people really want to look at uh, Central and Eastern Europe historical analogies, uh, they'd be much better served looking at 1914 and the kind of cascading failure of a hyper-militarized alliance network that caused World War I from uh, simple events between Serbia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, and, of course, you would never have had World War II in the first place if you had not had World War I. So this, like, very, very hyper-fixated uh, view is actually very dangerous because it forces everything to a binary. You either want to appease Putin or you are a hero for freedom who wants to fight him. Well, I think there's a lot of other positions out there from those. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well said. Uh, talking with Dr. Christopher Mott. So tell me about this column, The Democratist War on Diplomacy. I've read it, and I encourage everybody to read it. But when you say The Democratist War on Diplomacy, what is democratism? Who are the democratists, and why are they at war with diplomacy as an idea and a strategy? Ah, uh, yes. So I'm pulling the phrase, I can't take full credit for this, because I am pulling the phrase from a book by uh, Dr. Emily Findlay, um, who kind of, although the term predates her, she really gives it a specific definition. And it's someone who believes that the only way to really govern a society is through a liberal democratic system, and that's the only legitimate way. Uh, this, of course, doesn't just apply to one's own society, but to the entire world. Now, this obviously is an ideology of expansionism, which may not always be popular at all times in the society which is upheld. So the democratist tends to, while strongly believing that democracy is the only way forward, uh, tends to also have this very strong anti-populist side that says, but we can't let uh, the common people have any say 
in policy matters, particularly foreign policy matters, because then they might say, ah, we don't want to, you know, export this worldview to other countries. We, we might want to save money and, and, and build bridges at home or something. And so the democratists said, no, like we have to we have to keep the, uh, the, the, the screws on so that the elites, uh, which is a kind of, you know, ideological elite of kind of uh, – uh, international liberalism, which is not the same thing as how the term liberalism is used in American domestic politics, but uh, as this kind of enlightenment liberalism um, is is just kept solidly in power and then exported abroad consistently. And that's the only real uh, – that's the purpose of the state, and that is why it is supposed to uh, go forth and conquer, if you will. But the problem, of course, with that is, is when you come across powerful countries that are not liberal democracies – and they don't want anything to do with this, and you have to negotiate with them, um, it becomes much harder to engage in diplomacy because you have a chorus of people, possibly in the foreign policy elite like we have now, who say, oh, no, this is illegitimate. How dare you negotiate with Russia? How do you re- dare you negotiate with China? You're selling out democracy and therefore selling out your own citizens. And we, the democratists, are determining – who those citizens are and what are their legitimate views. So it's a very um, – it's an ideological construct that is meant to kind of give fuel to the fire of the morale of people who, who feel themselves very on the right side of history, if you will, and uh, want to castigate a kind of practical getting down to brass tacks power politics view of things, which is traditionally how – Many countries, including liberal democracies, function when they're not being too ideological. One of the uh, aspects of the Bush doctrine, and it was meant different things at different times, was that democracies don't attack one another. And that that was part of the rationale for the United States having a regime change policy in countries like Iraq and turn these authoritarian um, regimes into democracies. Did the ideology, the ideology of democratism, did that begin with the, in the grand scale anyway, with the Bush administration, or did it take a hold long before that? What were the sort of origins of democratism as an ideology? Um, it it actually goes back a bit further than that. Uh, uh, specifically, the uh, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the political thought of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, is very much for kind of exporting this kind of enlightenment uh, worldview. Uh, in the United States, which was much weaker than France back then, it didn't really take off, although Thomas Jefferson definitely had inklings of this ideology. Uh, but what you really see uh, is is Woodrow Wilson being the first kind of president who very explicitly uh, wants to, quote-unquote, make the world safe for democracy. Now, this fully militarized kind of uh, millennialist uh, take over the whole world type of thing, that is a George W. Bush thing. Like the extent to which it became a central part of policy is very much a part of the Bush administration. But the Bush administration does, in fact, mirror the experience of Woodrow Wilson in many ways because kind of following the democratist paradigm, you have a president who mobilizes for war and says this isn't just a war of interest, this isn't just a war for a specific region, this is a war for the heart and soul of the human race, et cetera, et cetera, while also, while talking about freedom, curtailing freedoms at home. Um, You have a lot of the first kind of big crackdowns on anti-war movements in the U.S. occur during World War I, and of course, 
in the Bush administration, we get the Patriot Act, and we also get the, the kind of FBI notoriously entrapping oftentimes mentally deficient teenagers by you know, dangling out uh, entrapment schemes to say, oh, if you want to do a terrorist plot, like here's where you go and here's how you do it. And then they show up at some kid's house and arrest them. Uh, these kinds of things, they mirror each other. Uh, so you could say it really entered the establishment with Wilson, but it didn't really last. But when Bush inserted it as part of the war on terror, it, we never got rid of it. There was never really a, a counter reaction. Now, as we all know, Obama ran on hope and change. Obama adopted and in some cases expanded all of these policies. And we have never had a rollback from that. So we, we have we, – I guess you could say that we live in a type of a militarized security state democratism right now. Yeah, I, I think that sums up the uh, George W. Bush era in a nutshell, is uh, warrantless wiretapping, entrapping mentally ill people into jail sentences while preaching democracy uh, and using it for justification to uh, to go to war. Now, one of the things that I don't think a lot of people would have seen coming is the role of China on the international stage. Historically, since the Communist Revolution, the Chinese have largely kept to themselves. They haven't gotten involved in a lot of international conflicts. They like to be able to uh, do business with everybody and not really necessarily get involved in the nitty-gritty. Also, when it comes to countries that you would think would hold diplomacy in high value, uh, communist dictatorship autocracies probably aren't high on that list. And yet China has emerged as I would say maybe the world's leading diplomatic country at this point. What's going on with sort of China acting very U.S. like on the diplomatic stage? Why are they doing this? Why is China mediating conflicts between places like Saudi Arabia and Iran and offering to do so in Russia and Ukraine and who knows uh, wherever else? Why is China taking up this historically American role? Well, that's because China simply has much more capacity than it had before, first of all. Second of all, it's because China senses an opportunity, particularly to embarrass the United States. The U.S. is overextended, and the U.S. is constantly insisting that all of its partners and even potential partners who may not be official allies tow a very absolutist line on all these issues. And I'm not just talking war. I'm talking sanctions, too. The U.S. is addicted to sanctions. Sanctions have doubled mm. under every presidential administration for the, going back four presidencies now. They just keep expanding, expanding. And, of course, sanctions interfere not just with the U.S. and whoever they're targeting trade, but with many U.S. partners who the, the D.C. puts pressure on to prevent them from allowing a circumventation of sanctions. So this actually economically harms a lot of people, and it undermines U.S. financial power. The Chinese have a kind of sovereignty first, uh, non-ideological uh, more inclination. They will do business with anyone that <laughs> it doesn't threaten them to do business with. So they become a much more secure diplomatic partner in a lot of ways uh, as their capacity has grown. I would say at this point, they're all practically a peer competitor with the U.S. Uh, people see them as more diplomatically stable, less likely to curtail their international uh, trade options. And then the Chinese see the opportunity to just show 
that they're a big superpower now and show how they can they can walk into these places and perform. I mean, so far, who knows? We'll see the results, but perform pretty well. Uh, <laughs> bringing together Saudi Arabia and Iran is something that D.C. never would have been trusted to do, particularly by Iran, but also by many other actors in the Middle East, because everyone knows where the U.S. stands. Right, where, because when, when, you, when you keep picking a side, it's very difficult to get anybody to uh, to ha- pick you as their as their mediator. Hey, we're going to have to end it there. Christopher, really enjoyed the conversation. I hope we could do this in the future. Absolutely. Sure thing. Uh, if you want to read the article that we've been talking about, go to my Facebook page. It's up there right now, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Believe it or not, uh, this particular song uh, with uh, Justin Timberlake and Timbaland is actually one of the top songs in Russia right now, believe it or not. So there you have it. Well, certainly one of the top American songs in Russia. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. If you are uh, just tuning into the show, let me catch you up on what you need to know. Because of the writer's strike, we are doing this show without writers. Very difficult. We've all been struggling. and um, But it, it's very difficult. But we've been somehow managing to do this show without any written material. Very challenging, but we're doing it. Also, there are still two cats recovering in my garage. And they're going to be released, I believe. They were supposed to be released yesterday. And so now they're going to be released tomorrow. And you think about it. They got to my house, I think, either Saturday or Sunday. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's three or four days for these cats to be stuck in a garage. And my wife just feels so bad for them uh, because they are... At least one of the cats is very, very kind, very cute, and very cuddly, and just wants to play. The other cat is very afraid and uh, and skittish. But you know, basically, with uh, female cats, they have all these layers of stitches that you they can't be going out and doing their cat thing out on the streets and risk opening up their stitches. So they do much more so than the male cats. They do have to stay kind of confined as they recover for uh, three or four days. But uh, we'll be happy to set them free tomorrow, although my wife is really going to miss this uh, this one cat. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Uh, those of you that are holding, I don't want to rush you through a comment with 
40 seconds to go. So we'll um, allow you to speak after the top of the hour. We have some AI updates, and Ben Smith will be here next hour. A lot to cover on both ends of that spectrum. Uh, you can be heard at 800-848-9222. We're also on Twitter, even though I am now unverified because I am refusing to fork over that, what is it, $15 a month, $10 a month? It's the principle to Elon Musk to be verified. Uh, give me a call, 800-848-9222. My Twitter handle, if you care to just follow me, is at Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. get to the point where we have to do an AI hour every either every week or every day because the amount of news related to artificial intelligence every day is just staggering. And uh, some of it's good news, some of it's not so good news. I want to run through a couple of stories that have crossed my desk in the last couple of days, weeks, on the potential benefits or the potential hazards of artificial intelligence, because I've said I am uh, openly ambivalent about artificial intelligence. I think artificial intelligence has the potential to help us do an incredible amount of things when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to technology, when it comes to even aiding in creativity, when it comes to space exploration, when it comes to all sorts of other things. I also think this may end up being what destroys humanity. And I know that may sound draconian, but apparently I'm not alone. The man dubbed the godfather of artificial intelligence has left his position at Google. Now, when you're when you're dubbed the godfather of artificial intelligence, do you think that you walk around just talking like Marlon Brando? I mean, do you think you in The Godfather, I should say, talking like uh, like Vito Corleone? Um, I mean, do you think you go to your staff meetings? I don't know who decides that you're named the godfather of artificial intelligence. But you think you should. I would go up to a um, a board meeting and just say, I'm going to make him an algorithm he can't refuse. The AI, the AI does not hate you, nor does it love you. But you're made out of atoms, which it can use for something else. AI will increasingly replace repetitive jobs, not just for blue collar, but for white collar work too. You see. 
I spoil my engineers, as you can see. They cold when they should listen. AI is going to be a pervasive force that will reshape our society and in many ways, ways we can't even imagine. ChatGPT would know that without being told. Well, anyway, I, I'm not going to continue. I'm going to spare you uh, the uh, continuing a godfather of uh, AI discussion. Well, anyway, Jeffrey Hinton wants to warn the world about the dangers of the very product that he was instrumental in creating. Jeffrey Hinton said he resigned from Google, and I speak to you as a user of the Google Pixel 7 Pro. Jeffrey Hinton said he resigned from Google after more than a decade so that he can freely discuss the dangers of AI. Now, what are those dangers? Any guesses? Any guesses? Anyone, as Ben Stein might ask? Hinton said misinformation, like fake videos, fake photos, fake texts have been on the rise as AI becomes more widespread. Hinton says the average person will not be able to know what is true anymore. Isn't that frightening? When you read an article, you watch a video, you look at a photograph, and you're simply going to have no idea whether it's true or not? I mean, that is really frightening. When you don't know which direction is up, which direction is down, that's really a scary place to be. So Hinton is warning that it is hard to, to – he warned that it is hard to people from using AI for questionable reasons. Hinton has joined this growing roster of industry experts calling for regulation, including Elon Musk. And uh, Musk said, I I think actually AI is a bigger risk to society than cars or planes or a medicine. Uh, The White House is promising not to turn a blind eye to the dangers of AI. Additionally, the White House is urging Congress to put regulations in place. You know, here's the problem with that, right? I don't think they know what regulations to implement. What regulations can you put in place? And feel free to weigh in, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. What regulations can you really put in place that will allow AI to be used for the beneficial aspects of it, but not get to a point where we're creating the Cylons uh, from Battlestar Galactica or the Kalon from the Orville that then destroy all the organic matter on Earth? Uh, There are some lawmakers that have been very, very forward-thinking in this, but uh, I think this is very, very scary stuff here. And, by the way, uh, similarly on the scary level, and then there are some some good news AI stories, which we'll get to, a third of artificial intelligence researchers, a third, think that AI could actually lead to a nuclear-level catastrophe. Now, that's big. Nuclear-level catastrophe? I guess if you're a glass-half-empty kind of a guy, that's how you look at it. If you're more of a glass-half-full kind of a guy or a glass-two-thirds-full kind of guy, you might say, well, that means two-thirds of AI researchers don't think we're headed towards a nuclear-level catastrophe. You remember the movie Mars Attacks? Where um, I don't want to. It's I mean it's a ridiculous film. I'm not spoiling anything for you. It's uh, it's it's you might. It, there's a lot of great stars in it, and there's some fun moments in it. But it's a ridiculous film. But uh, there's uh, Martians come down from Mars, 
and they destroy Congress. They vaporize Congress. And uh, Jack Nicholson plays the president. I think he play, may play one or two other parts as well. But Jack Nicholson plays the president. And somebody asks him, well, you know, they've just destroyed Congress. I think it's Rod Steiger that tells him this. They've just destroyed Congress. What are we going to tell the American people? And Jack Nicholson says immediately, without missing a beat, he says, tell the American people they still have two out of three branches of the government working for them, and that ain't bad. So if Jack Nicholson were looking at these, this data, he would say that two-thirds of researchers think that AI will not cause a nuclear-level catastrophe. But this is serious stuff in all seriousness. Nothing like uh, having a serious discussion punctuated by poor imitations of Jack Nicholson and Vito Corleone. But according to a survey conducted by Stanford University's Institute for Human-Centered AI, 36% of researchers believe that AI could cause a nuclear-level catastrophe. And I guess the question here is how, right? Now, that 36% number is too large to ignore. And the answer really is more ways than one. If, If it makes anyone feel better which I certainly would like to feel better after seeing that 36% number. A user recently did try to get an autonomous AI system dubbed Chaos GPT to destroy humanity, but it didn't get very far at all. That 36% figure does come with an important caveat. It only refers to AI decision-making, as in an AI making a choice on its own that ultimately causes a catastrophe, not human misuse of AI, which is a growing threat that the report addressed separately later on. But according to this situation, the number of AI incidents and controversies has increased 26 times since 2012. Some notable incidents included in 2022, where there was a deep fake video of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky surrendering and U.S. prisons using call monitoring technology on their inmates. Now, this growth is evidence of both greater use of AI technology and the awareness of misuse possibilities. In other words, there are other ways that AI can and is causing harm. And I think we ought to buckle up here. This survey by these AI researchers, it also serves as a a glimpse into the mind of the AI industry, which overall seems to have the same kind of ambivalence that I have about the future of this technology. For instance, only 57% of researchers think that recent research progress is paving the way for artificial general intelligence. Those polled did have one significant area of agreement. 73% of the researchers feel that AI could soon lead to revolutionary societal change. Well, what does that mean? Is it going to be a revolution like the Industrial Revolution, which a lot of people think was positive? Is it going to be a revolution like the communist Chinese revolution, which I think a lot of people would view as negative? Uh, Also on the AI front, and then I'll take your calls in a moment, six open lines, 800-848-9222. Human sonographers, those are humans that read sonograms, and an AI model went mano a mano, or I guess mano a gizmo, Uh, The machine versus the man. In a clinical study at L.A.'s Cedar-Sinai Medical Center. And they read heart ultrasounds 
to see whose initial cardiac health assessments were most accurate. Matt Blaze, any guess who won, the humans or the machines? Machines. The, you are absolutely correct. These, these AI models did a Watson to uh, Ken Jennings. The machines won. And look, we might have bested the Borg in Star Trek The Next Generation. We might have eventually gotten our way over the Cylons. But when it comes to medical diagnoses, the machines are beating the humans. So what does that mean? Should we welcome the opportunity to see a robot doctor? Or should we stick with the human knowing that that human is not going to read that sonogram as well as a machine? Shall we play a game? I'll tell you what, as uh, you know, I, and I hope my wife and I have, you know, another child or additional children one day. But if I was taking my wife w- when she was with child to be diagnosed and I wanted to know if there was going to be some issue with that with that baby of uh, I mean, I, I hate I hate to even ponder the kind of scenario that there could could be. I would want the most accurate diagnosis possible, and I would take it to the machine if that's the most accurate way. Now, what does that mean for the future of humans and medicine if they're being outplayed at their own game by a machine? And there, there's one other issue. There's one other area of this economy that I'm betting many of you don't think about, but which is vitally important in multiple continents in multiple countries, that AI is going to replace humans. That is the world of fortune cookies. Fortune cookies, which have historically been the most accurate way of predicting the future, they're being slowly but surely replaced by artificial intelligence. Now, it used to be, if you wanted to know what your future held, If you wanted to know what your lucky numbers were, you would go out and get Chinese food. I'll be honest with you. I don't even really like Chinese food. It's not good for you, and I find it to be an inferior Asian food uh, as compared to Thai, to Japanese, to Indian. And yet I would still go and get that Chinese food because I want to know my future. Much like William Shatner in that Twilight Zone episode, I don't have one of those little devil fortune teller things. I only have the fortune cookies. And you know what? Historically, it's been proven that the fortune cookies are right almost all the time. And when they're not right, at least they give you a little nugget of wisdom and a very delicious dessert, which is not too sweet, but also not too crunchy. Sort of a a perfect dessert. It's got that wisdom in there. And then... It's sort of the perfect balance between mild, sweet, crunchy, not crunchy. It's great. And now at least one fortune writing company is now using ChatGPT to come up with the clever messages that are a beloved staple of Chinese food America. Uh, Wall Street Journal reporting that while fortune cookies did not originate in China... I don't think if any, anyone really knows where for, fortune cookies came from. The theory is that they are actually from the future, and that's why the fortunes tend to be so accurate. But the tradition, some people believe, evolved from wafers eaten in ancient Japan. 
And uh, they've become a big part of the typical American Chinese restaurant experience. And for decades, the companies that produce fortune cookies, they've used human writers to come up with the witty sayings, the insightful phrases, the mysterious messages. But for even the most creative humans, coming up with these fortunes is not easy. Writers spend hours trying to craft the perfect text. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've met that have suffered with fortune cookie writer's block. They sit there with a giant magnifying glass and a tiny little typewriter typing out these little messages on these little pieces of paper and trying to come up with something that's both accurate and witty and a true reflection of your lucky numbers. Well, now, since these manufacturers around the world churn out roughly 3 billion fortune cookies each year, the demand is quite high for unique, inventive fortunes. Now, some fortune cookie makers are turning to ChatGPT to make their fortunes. So uh, this is wild. Restaurant Business, the uh, which is a publication says that uh, they've come up with a five-step process to make ChatGPT useful for the task of writing fortunes. Text parsing, emotional intelligence, prompt writing, prompt refining, and editing. Where will all the fortune cookies go? Or the fortune cookie writers go, I should say. Maybe we can use them as scab replacements during the writer's strike to make up for the writers that are uh, not writing for this show anymore, right? I mean, if you see me uh, all of a sudden start to sound very wise in little tidbits and say things like, don't hold on to things that require a tight grip, or um, I didn't come this far to only come this far, you know that we are giving a job as scabs, to these fortune cookie writers. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. One other AI story that I want to bring to um, your attention, and then I will uh, take your calls on this, and then we're going to talk with Ben Smith in about 10 minutes. You know, we've talked before about uh, chat GPT and how a lot of the information, at least on the free version that I use, is inaccurate. I, I ask it to write a biography of me. It has me, you know, different age, different number of children, different place where I was born. And a lot of people just think that means that these AIs are inaccurate. Well, what does it mean when an AI hallucinates? Okay? In 1943, Abby Hoffman, accidentally ingested LSD, and he experienced an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, became Mr. LSD. But what happens when an AI hallucinates? AI could potentially read something incorrect on the Internet and repeat it, but a hallucination isn't regurgitated lies. It's inaccurate information that doesn't correspond with its training data. Meaning, uh, because AI, the chat GPT, it gets its sources from everything out there on the Internet. So when we say it hallucinates, it makes something up. Not based on the text that it gets, not based on the images that it gets, and that, or anything else that it's fed. For example, Google's Bard chat bot, which is a form of AI, which I've used, which is a lot of fun. 
told Wall Street Journal columnist Ben Zimmer that Hans Jacobson, a linguist who never existed, never existed, coined the term argumentative diphthongization, a phrase that Zimmer made up. The Wall Street Journal columnist Ben Zimmer made it up, and the Google Bard is giving it to the credit to this linguist who never existed. More troubling, an Australian politician is considering suing ChatGPT after they claim that he'd served time in prison for bribery, while a professor said it fabricated a Washington Post article accusing him of sexual harassment. Well, why does this happen? The troubling answer is we don't know. AI is hallucinating. And Google CEO Sundar Pichai told 60 Minutes that all models, including Bard, have this problem. But no one's been able to solve or fully understand it. Isn't that frightening? That we have these computers, which we, meaning I didn't have any role in it, but my, my species did. We have invented these machines. And they're lying. They're spitting out lies instantly that were never fed to them. They're making up lies. Why? The thing about ChatGPT and BARD and Bing and other language models is that they don't really know anything. They just use all the data at their disposal to predict and generate text, and sometimes that's wrong. So I don't know even if hallucination is the right term for this. I read the Hustle newsletter, which is a newsletter I really enjoy. But a lot of people are using it, uh, that term, and... um, some people are suggesting other terms. I don't know. But it is certainly troubling. One of the bright spots for AI is the fact that AI is right now transforming astronomy. Um, this is huge. AI is speeding up discoveries about the universe and helping to hone the search for life within the universe. A lot of astronomers spend a lot of, a large amount of time combing through data collected by telescopes. And AI and machine learning can be used to quickly pick out intriguing little parts of a data set, making it less likely that astronomers are going to miss something important. So last month, for instance, scientists revealed an image of the black hole at the center of the galaxy M87, not our galaxy, not the Milky Way, that was reprocessed using a machine learning algorithm. And that sharpened image should allow scientists to more accurately estimate the black hole's mass. Scientists have also used artificial intelligence to make it easier to analyze vast amounts of data gathered by gravitational wave detectors. Now, researchers are using algorithms to figure out characteristics of the object that produced the gravitational waves in the first place. AI is also being used to pinpoint newly forming planets around young stars. I think you got to call that a win. SETI, and we've had Seth Shostak, uh, the uh, head of SETI, on the show, but SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. SETI efforts could be helped by AI and machine learning, which are particularly adept at picking out patterns. So I think it's wild what's going on. All right, we're going to talk to Ben Smith in a minute, but a couple of you have been patiently holding. I want to run through these quickly. 800-848-9222. Chris is in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. Hey, good morning, Frank. So with AI, uh, computers, historically, they've always said computers can't express or feel emotion. Now, with perception being reality, are human beings able to perceive that the new AI computers, like a robot companion, that they convey 
empathy. And if that happens, then emotions like love will AI robot dogs and cats replace real life dogs and cats or, or just be it'll be a new genre of companionship with humans where if your child has trouble making friends with its human companions, then maybe they'll have robot companions and robot cats and dogs and you know, instead of getting your cat another cat you get it a robot cat well maybe maybe chris right i mean um there for instance uh, kevin roos the technology columnist for the new york times wrote about how the um the microsoft chat bot tried to get him to leave his wife for the uh chat bot and look we're at the in the grand scheme of things i don't want to say we're at the very beginning of this technology but we've got a long ways to go this technology is only going to get better and better so i think the problems with what we're seeing right now could be much worse uh ben smith joining us in a moment diana's in manhattan hello diana hi i know how crazy this is going to sound but is it possible that ai is um being taken over in some instances by evil discarnate entities, not unlike a Ouija board, and is making up these malevolent lies just to uh, play with people. Well, I have to admit, that's one that I have not yet heard, uh, Diana, but what would it gain by making up by attributing a quote uh, to a linguist that never existed or by saying an Australian politician was was convicted of bribery or saying a professor. Well, I said malevolent entities, just people who the same people who in life would have spread evil gossip, which wasn't true. Or, you know, just if they're floating around and they can somehow invade A.I., why wouldn't they do that if they'd done it in life? Uh, Diana, um, that is not the strangest thing I've ever heard. That's for sure. All right. Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of Semaphore, a terrific new news outlet, which I find myself reading uh, every day. In fact, multiple times a day because I've subscribed to about five or six of these newsletters. And uh, they're all great. And uh, he is going to join us next. He's got a new book out. I'm going to pick his brain on uh, some of the media issues of the day. But this book, it's called Traffic. It really traces how we got where we are. You want to know why we're in the place that we are today, media-wise, news-wise, journalism-wise. you got to check out this book, Traffic. We're going to talk about it with Ben Smith straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I have complained uh, bitterly and repeatedly, probably much to the uh, boredom of the audience who's heard me rail about this for uh, umpteen times, that my I, I have too many emails. My full day is going through email. 
And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, the person that is kind enough to join us right now on the radio is one of the key culprits about that. Because as the editor-in-chief of Semaphore, he has uh, helped birth yet another terrific news organization. And they do newsletters on all sorts of different subjects. If you're interested in, say, foreign policy or international security, they have a newsletter for that, which does a comprehensive rundown of the 10 or 12 biggest stories in foreign policy with links to other sources. Then they do the same thing for finance and the economy. Then they do the same thing for what's happening in national politics. And then they do the same thing depending on just about everything you're interested in. And I think they do a pretty concise job of covering all the news in a relatively objective manner. And it's kind of become my way of reading the paper. But it does fill up my email box. I have been an admirer... And uh, a friend, I would say, of Ben Smith for many years. He is a veteran journalist. He's been with the New York Times. He's been with the New York Daily News. He's been with Politico. He was uh, one of the uh, chief buzzers at BuzzFeed. And these days, he's the editor-in-chief of Semaphore and the author of the new book, which everybody in media circles is talking about, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. Ben, thanks for staying up late with us. Yeah, thanks so much for the kind words and for having me, Frank. I am, you know, lucky enough to be on the out, uh, on the West Coast today, so I didn't have to stay up that late. Well, that's cheating. That's cheating. That's not really. Uh, that's not really fair. Hey, uh, I've talked a little bit w- about Semaphore before, and I've talked with uh, a couple of the great journalists that work with Semaphore. But give us the sort of Reader's Digest version for listeners that are unfamiliar with Semaphore. Why is it called Semaphore, and what is it? Um, well, you give a pretty great plug, um, but I would say our uh, – I mean, you know, we're trying to solve the big problems that I think most readers face right now, that you're totally overwhelmed with how much is coming in and, and sort of unsure of who to trust. And so we're trying to deliver news in a super transparent way, you know, where journalists make clear, you know, what the facts are, what our own opinions are, and then really try hard, as you say, to bring in concise – views from all over, from other countries, from other points of view, people who disagree with us, and to, you know, sort of deliver the news in a way that, that gives you that insight, not not just not just one newspaper article with somebody's opinion kind of baked in. And how about that name, semaphore? What does it mean? So it's an old word that means like, it basically means signs or signals. And um, in English, it refers to like railroad signals. And I think if you're if you're a boater, People on boats seem to know what it means. It's a set of flags. But what we liked about it is it means more or less the same thing in like 50 different languages. Oh, well, that's pretty neat. Uh, Early on, and then I do want to talk about the book Traffic, which I know you put a lot of work to and it comes across and how it's written. Uh, Early on, there was a couple of uh, arrows uh, slinged in Semaphore's direction because one of the early people that was backing it financially was Sam Bankman-Fried. So does that mean that you guys spend most of your time talking about the best PR spin to put on Sam Bankman-Fried's trial? Uh, no, we broke a lot of news about him. Actually, I mean, not not positive news. And we have, I think, we've said that we are are, give, are you know gonna gonna give his money back. Well, okay. Well, that's uh, that's fair. Got to ask. You have been um, really, I think, at the vanguard of all this uh, Tucker Carlson news. The coverage that you've been doing, you specifically and your outlet, has been exemplary. A lot of people wondering why Tucker was fired, and a lot more people wondering what he does next. Uh, What's your take on both of those things, Ben? So 
So on the first thing, we have all, you know, every news outlet in America has published what they think is the explanation. The New York Times had a story that said, this is the text message that got Tucker Carlson fired. Um, I think the reality is we do not know. Like Rupert Murdoch made a decision to fire him. There are a lot of things contributing to that, no doubt, that he sort of seemed too big for the network, that he said disgusting things about women, that he um, you know, wasn't a loyal Republican, I, all sorts of different things. But I don't think we really know what triggered the 92-year-old who runs the place to wake up one morning and fire him. One of the areas where – and what about what he does next? Any theories or anything you're hearing? Yeah, I mean, you know, he launched this show on Twitter, but I think – or he relaunched his show on Twitter. Um, I don't think he or anyone thinks that he can really wind up on Twitter. Twitter is a weird place to watch a long-form television show. Like I tried to do this once, and the problem is people keep scrolling, and it's, it's not a place anybody sits and watches for half an hour. Um, and it doesn't have a way for him to make any money, but it is, I think, the one place that he can arguably do it without Fox you know, take, getting mad at him. Um, I think you know. I think he'll wind up selling his his services to the highest bidder, basically, and I think the bid will be pretty high because he has such a big following. But I think people, it's easy to underestimate the power of just that huge Fox News audience who are mostly older and not going to necessarily download his new app. You know, if he launches or if he launches on some obscure platform, aren't necessarily going to follow him there. And I think, I don't know, I guess my prediction is that he'll wind up making more money but having less influence. Mm. Yeah, we, we have certainly seen that w- before with some other former Fox primetime stars. Hey, you earned his ire a couple of times uh, and his begrudging respect for coming on his show when you were the uh, editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed and you made the decision to publish the Steele dossier. I'm sure you've been asked about this many times over the last six years, but given what we now know about the the Steele dossier through the prism of hindsight. Do you have any regrets about BuzzFeed publishing it? Um, well, I think, you know, folks should buy my book for the really long version <laughs> of this, of my kind of basically ambivalent view about it. I think at the time I thought both it was the right thing to do journalistically and that it would ultimately be good, you know, broadly good just to have the thing out. This thing that every, all the, everyone, all the insiders had already seen it, right? All the politicians and the journalists and the security people. Um, it'd been briefed to two presidents, but I think in the end, you know, I, I think, I guess I would say two things. One is, one is, when, but by the time we published it, CNN had reported that this document existed that had compromising material about the president. I think once you go and say that in public, you sort of have to publish it. Like you can't just go waving this document around, saying that it's the president's been compromised by the Russians, but we're not going to give you the details. Like I don't really think that's a tenable position. But when we published it, we said, you know, this is unverified, and in fact, it has some errors in it. And I think I had some kind of fantasy that people would say, okay, like I, I you know, I can kind of process the fact that these are unverified allegations. And instead, I think, you know, people who didn't like the president just took it as gospel, which we certainly didn't. You know, we sort of had a little caveat that everybody ignored on it. Um, you know, at the time we published it, I think the wide perception was that it was that we had attacked Donald Trump, and he called us a failing pile of garbage. I think now a lot of people think publishing it probably helped dispel some of the most lurid allegations about him and Russia. Well, I think you're I think you're right about that. Talking with Ben Smith, his new book is Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Now, 
I know you focus a great deal on Huff, Huffington Post and BuzzFeed in this book, but you also do a great job laying the groundwork for what the early Internet journalism scene was like. And in the mid to late 1990s, there was nobody that did a better job defining that than Matt Drudge. Uh, Before we talk about this Peretti-Denton rivalry that you chronicle in the book here, give us a little background. Remind folks where Drudge fit into this whole Internet media ecosystem. I mean, I think you know, Drudge was this incredibly important singular figure, still is, who, um, you know, who in some sense was the first one to really come in and attack the establishment media frontally. And, and basically, I mean, you know, for better and for worse, but it was a situation where Newsweek had this story about the president having an affair with an intern, wasn't totally sure what to do with it. Drudge caught wind of it and basically published the story while these editors at Newsweek are debating what to do with the story, which is a pretty crazy thing to have happened to you. Sure. If you're if you're Newsweek, um, but it just and, and that just led to this acceleration, I think, of the speed of media, this sense that that you you know that it's harder and harder for gatekeepers to you know to keep the gates to keep secrets from people. Um, you know, and then for a time, Drudge was, I think, you know, the most powerful person in media, partly because, like, television producers would look at the Drudge Report in the morning and decide what the news was. And he he could cause, you know, total panic. I remember covering the McCain campaign in 08, I think it was, and Drudge had decided that there was some kind of weird spot on McCain's head <laughs> and circled it, put it on the Drudge Report and with the word, I think he was just cancer, question mark. And, you know, that was the whole day of reporters being demanding to know what was up with the spot on McCain's head. The drudge had just kind of woken up in the morning and thought, oh, that's a weird spot. Um, I think Twitter really replaced his role in driving the conversation, although lots of people still go to him. And I think as Twitter kind of falls apart at the moment, it's sort of, he's sort of having a, a renaissance in a weird way. It's interesting. It, that is interesting, and it's, one, it's something that I hadn't have thought of. Talk with Ben Smith. His new book is Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. In this book, you chronicle the story of Jonah Peretti of the Huffington Post and uh, BuzzFeed and Nick Denton. Um, tell me who these men were and what they were both trying to do at HuffPo and BuzzFeed. Yeah, I mean, the most the, for me, the most fun part of writing the book was going back and, you know, sort of tracking down this scene that I was sort of on the outside of looking in. And I mean, Drudge was part of it, too. There's these great, great characters, really. And, and two of them were um, Jonah Peretti, who was this, you know, I, in, the, in, the, in the language of the 90s, he was basically a culture jammer. He was a prankster who had, got, had gotten curious about how you could do weird, funny stunts and watch them spread on the Internet. And, and, and eventually... We, we helped Huffington Post first build this huge wave of traffic and then and then went on to found BuzzFeed. And he had this – I mean, I worked with him in, starting in 2012, and the thing that he, he really captured was that he was among the first to see that social media was going to be this huge wave that would kind of crash through media and society and that news organizations, media companies that could kind of ride that wave could just build enormous scale very, very fast, and that's what BuzzFeed did. Um I mean, we, he and we had theories about how social media would work. In particular, we, <laughs> we believed that people would mostly behave in really positive ways on social media because they'd want their friends to think they weren't jerks, which obviously did not turn out to be true. Yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and the other character, and sort of Jonah's rival, and sometimes opposite, was a guy named Nick Denton, who founded Gawker, and a bunch of other blogs. Jezebel's another well-known one, Gizmodo. And I think the thing he saw in new media was just that it could kind of strip the hypocrisy off of old media companies. That you could, you know you could tell, you could now publish what people really, what journalists were really saying behind the scenes. A little like Drudge, you could also. Um, you know, you could see in the traffic statistics that the audience was more interested in like pornography than in politics, and you could just give them that. Like you could, you know, he, that was his sort of basic point of view that you shouldn't, that you should just, you know, play to people's worst instincts in a certain way. Um, and at times, that was there were elements of that that were really refreshing. Like when he launched this the site Jezebel, the uh, first thing they did was put in a ten thousand dollar bounty for an unretouched photo. <laughs> and they, you know, somebody delivered a photo of Faith Hill when she still had freckles and uh, smile lines, which had been photoshopped out in Red Book. And I think there was a lot of stuff in media that was in various ways like that, that they kind of chipped away at. The, um, the, the book is written in a way that is chock full of information, very rich with history, but it's also written in a very dramatic way. Uh, there are aspects of it that are all, almost novelistic. I could tell the amount of work that you put into this. I can only imagine the amount of time. Why did you feel like this was such an important story to tell? Is it because the events that you're covering in this book really sort of laid the groundwork for the media climate that we're living in these days? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you and I and lots of other people like, you know, lived through this very chaotic, confusing, interesting moment in media and politics of all this change over the last 15, 20 years. And I think, you know, I guess I left BuzzFeed in 2019, went to the Times to write the media column and just was thinking, what did we, what just happened? Like what, what, what happened there? What did we all just live through and where did it start? You know, and how did we wind up in this place where this whole digital generation seems to be losing steam? Um, you know, politics has really been like profoundly reshaped by Twitter and Facebook. And, 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 and you know, how are those things connected? So that was, I sort of wanted to go back and kind of figure out the origin story. I guess I should say personally, too, I had been, you know, whenever you get to like a scene, everybody tells you that like last year was the last good year and you just missed it. And I, of course, have had that feeling about about internet media that I'd gotten there early, but not quite early enough, and wanted to go back and kind of, you know, report out the stuff I'd missed. I hear about that in the world of talk radio literally every day, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I've been hearing exactly. it for uh, fifteen years. Hey, um, BuzzFeed obviously just made a lot of news recently for essentially folding up shop. What happened? How did BuzzFeed go from being so influential, whether it was influential when it came to listicles or quizzes or in the kind of journalism that that you were doing, which dominated the whole news cycle and had everybody uh, citing BuzzFeed as its as its source? How did BuzzFeed go from being the top online dog culturally and journalistically to not being able to stay in business? I mean, there, there's a lot of very specific answers to that that have to do with bad management choices, bad revenue choices that I, among others, made. But the biggest picture is just that we, you know, we placed this kind of all our chips in bad on social media. The idea of BuzzFeed was we're going to build a new media company that's going to be you know, rooted in and tangled around and write about Facebook, Twitter, and these other social platforms. You know, we're going to grow as they grow, and we'll kind of figure out the business on the backs of social platforms, just sort of the way that like 
you know, ESPN and CNN and Fox build businesses on the back of Comcast and the other cable companies. Like we would be the content for these new digital pipes. And that, that just turned out totally wrong. Like there never was going to, there just weren't the, the, the people running those platforms weren't interested in having professional journalism, professional entertainment that they would have to pay for or that their users would have to pay for. And, um, yeah, and so that that just was a disaster, and and I think that was that's the core. And then you can sort of argue about whether that was delusional and we never had a shot, or whether these were decisions people like Mark Zuckerberg made, you know, mm. that could have gone in other ways. But um, but that's really the story. Talking with Ben Smith, his new book is Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Talk to me about Andrew Breitbart. Uh, obviously, we lost him uh, a few years ago, but he's somebody that you uh, that you cite as one of the primary architects in the battle for clicks, which seems to define almost every media outlet these days. How influential was he in the current media environment that we have today? Yeah, I mean, I think he's a really interesting figure because he was he was there early. He was kind of Matt Drudge's uncredited assistant for years. And and then, of all things, left Drudge to start Huffington Post, the kind of left-wing Drudge report, came back to Drudge, started this website, Breitbart, which then which became very big, but really, like, was the, I don't know, sort of in some ways invented, you know, online media on the right. Um, people like Ben Shapiro worked for him, got their start with him. Um I guess, I mean, I think he, you know, he died, gosh, more than, I think more than 10 years ago now, if that's possible. Um, and and he died sort of on the cusp of the Trump era. And I mm. think what, you know, Steve Bannon, who would later run Trump's campaign, took over his sites. And I don't, I'm not sure if Andrew would have gone exactly this way, but the thing Bannon did was really like follow the traffic in particular to its logical conclusion and the kind of populist right-wing politics that. Trump and people like that around the world are into, uh, you know, are very well suited to Facebook and particularly the way Facebook worked in the middle of the 2010s, where, in, where they were f- obsessed with engagement, where if you would, if you picked a fight and people started yelling you at the comments, that was like the best way to get your thing to, to share. And, you know, and, and, and the traffic and yeah, and I think in the kind of and Breitbart really just like followed that energy straight to Donald Trump. Uh, last question for today, Ben, and I'll, I hope you'll come back whenever uh, whenever you're on the West Coast and our hours are, are conducive yeah, to doing so. Yeah, exactly. But um, every media outlet that I know seems to be dominated by this quest for clicks. Uh, radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, they're all about posting content that's going to generate um, the largest number of clicks and impressions possible. What do you think that's done to journalism, and do you see any reason to be optimistic for journalism's future in the Internet age? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think it- I don't. I'm not a lot of it, and I think it can be. It's very useful to understand who's reading you and why. But you can also, yeah. I mean, I think people often, often really what what you learn from it is what people want to hear, and you can and, and it can the temptation, which exists across media, is to tell people what they want to hear, even when it's not true. And I think the the, the sort of clarity of traffic can really intensify that temptation. I guess, but I think it's always there in in news media. Um, 
Gosh, what was the second half of that question? Reasons well, it's hope? basically any reason to be think, optimistic. You know, yeah, I just think, I just think the, the world, the media world, is changing so much right now, and so much of the action is in podcasts and radio shows like this, in newsletters like ours, and kind of essentially like smaller, quieter forms mm. of media, not giant social platforms where everybody's screaming at each other, but you know, places where you're hearing from a person you basically trust to be on the level, who is being transparent with you, and and, and yeah, and who's trying to help you navigate the total chaos of like late social media. Yeah. Ben, it's always a treat to talk with you. I'm uh, glad that you're doing well. Congratulations on the book. Congratulations on what you're doing with Semaphore. Uh, Let's do this again soon. Yeah, thank you for all the kind words, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Uh, Anytime. Uh, The book is Traffic. Its author is Ben Smith. It's available on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, do so at 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Moreno. Uh, also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Moreno Fan. Uh, it's Facebook.com slash Moreno Fan. Uh, I posted a video on Facebook yesterday, and I thought it was pretty fun. I mean, uh, I like doing these from time to time. I, you, you know, I would do them every day. But for the fact that I don't have a lot of time. So I try to do with them when I can. And I try to use elements that are more visual than audio. Like yesterday, I told you about that story about my neighbor, John Charles, posting that fake uh, sanitation warning on my door. Well, I show the warning in the Facebook video. And uh, I tried this great cigar yesterday. It's from a company. I think they're actually going to be advertising uh, on our program. But uh, Roger Stone, actually, of all people, turned me on to this company. It's called My Patriot Cigars. And you check it out, MyPatriotCigar.com. And I think it's kind of a more conservative cigar company. And I tried the the first smoke yesterday. I tried the, uh, I think it was the um, TNT. And it was good. You can hear my review on it. And then uh, hopefully you'll be hearing about it on this uh, program soon. But I'll tell you what. um, Now, maybe it was the way that I'm sitting in this video that I did, and you could watch it and share it if you want, facebook.com slash Fan. But someone, and look, I'm not going to obsess about one negative comment, but I thought about this as Ben was talking about how they envisioned that social media would make people nicer in their comments because people would see it. One of the people on there, a, a, a user named Dubal, 
uh, they said, hey, are you gaining weight? Now, I don't really think I've gained weight. I'm, I'm sure I've put on a couple of pounds since Easter because you can't go from not drinking anything and not eating anything and then all of a sudden eat and drink normally and not put on at least a few pounds. So I'm sure I have, but I don't think I'm, I'm terribly heavy. But I think it was the way the camera was situated in this video that it makes it look like I'm heavier than I am. But you can, And I'm looking at this video now, and it's kind of shot from the bottom so I think I do look heavier than I actually am. So you can watch the video and judge for yourself. Uh, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. I did like this cigar, though. Um, and if you, if you, we'll tell you more about that in the future. Hey, next hour, let's talk chemtrails, shall we? Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank morano gonna take your calls in just a moment chemtrails are they real are they a thing what are they time to be concerned well i'll discuss all that and more with mick west in about uh, 10 minutes very much looking forward to that conversation um one of the issues that is a repeated theme for me is how to stay mentally sharp as you age and one of the my greatest hope is to be able to live a long time and to be able to maintain my cognitive ability substantively to the point where it is now when I'm in my 90s or into triple digits. Maybe that's an unrealistic goal, but that's what I'm hoping. And I um, I'm obsessed with this idea. And my greatest fear is dealing with is suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's or something that robs me of my memories or my cognitive ability. And that's why I came across a very interesting article from CNBC, and it deals with a pair of 100-year-old sisters. And when I say sisters, I mean they're actually sisters. They're not part of a religious order or something. Shirley Hodges and Ruth Swedler. And they are a hundred years old and they have very impressive recall. They can make great conversation about what's going on in the world. And over the years, strangers and family members alike have commented on this. And um, one of them lives in a retirement home and the other, um, I think lives on her own. But anyway, the CNBC, uh, yeah, one lives in a retirement home, home, one lives in an independent living facility 800 miles away in North Carolina. Maybe she's listening to me right now, Shirley Hodges. We're being very proud to be heard in New Bern, North Carolina. And 
Shirley Hodges is 106. Her sister is 103. Okay? These are seasoned citizens. And they boiled down their best advice for staying sharp as you age. And I feel like a lot of people might be in the same boat. And a lot of people might be a little closer to 100 than I am. So I feel if I benefited from this, I figured why not share it with you. There's no guarantee that, I mean, this could be genetic for all we know. But I figured if uh, if I was interested in it, you might be too. So these are the four tips that CNBC boils down in terms of staying sharp into your hundreds. Number one, and I love this, work. Work. And that apparently is a big thing with both of them. Work. Stay working as long as you can. Try to make you full use of your talents. One of them was an actress. The other was a paraprofessional and a teacher's aide. Uh, one stayed nearly 20 years and only retired at the age of 70. She says, I loved working at the high school. And uh, she always loved interviewing people. And she kind of kept up with that. Two, and this dovetails with what we've heard from other experts, and neither of them mentioned crossword puzzles, okay? Spoiler alert. Two is, they said, connect. Both of them go on about the importance of family and especially a good marriage. They say, surround yourself with good people. Unfortunately, both of them have um, outlived their husbands. Both their husbands passed away. Three, and this is really interesting, learn. The entertainment that one of them favors transports her or presents her with challenging ideas. When she was younger, she loved going to the theater with friends. Nowadays, she says she doesn't watch television except for the news. She watches PBS at night, and her favorite TV show is 60 Minutes. She also says she loves reading. Hunger for knowledge led her to audit classes at the local college. Art and literature have seriously broadened her horizons. And then the last one they both mentioned, which I think is great, is appreciate. One of them never had the opportunity to go to college when she was young. It's one of her few regrets. So she and her sister um, were the youngest of eight children in a cramped apartment, and their parents were immigrants who had to scrape to get by. And they had to be careful because there were so many of them. So she appreciated everything she had. So there you have it. So those are their four tips from these these triple-digit sisters. Appreciate, learn, connect, work. Speaking of dementia and Alzheimer's, very promising information coming out from Eli Lilly. We'll see where this goes. Eli Lilly says their new Alzheimer's drug, it's called Donanem, uh, Donanemab. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but uh, donanemab, I don't know. It slows the early stages of Alzheimer's disease by 35%. This is huge. This drug slowed cognitive and functional decline for people with early stages of this disease. This could lead to a new commercially available drug for Alzheimer's. So this is wonderful. 
They said they're going to submit an application by the end of June to the FDA seeking approval to market this uh, this particular drug. I will tell you, one of the things that I don't think President Trump gets enough credit for is his right to uh, right to try initiative where he gave uh, patients that had horrible diseases and terminally ill diseases the ability to legally use drugs that were not yet approved. And I feel like if you have one of these terminal illnesses or one of these terrible diseases, why shouldn't you have that right? The last thing I'll mention on forgetting, it reminds me of a video that I came across on the YouTube the other day about fog bank. Do you know what fog bank is? Fog bank is the material that was used to manufacture W-76 thermonuclear warheads, the H-bomb, essentially. It was invented in the 70s, and it was very top secret. So top secret! I said it was so top secret. It was so top secret! How How top top secret secret was it? Thank you. Oh, my goodness. This thing on. Um, It was so top secret that um, they it was made out of popcorn. I'm just kidding. No. Um, It was so top secret that the nuclear authorities that work for the federal government, they forgot how to make it. I'm not joking. They forgot how to make it. It was invented in the 70s, and it was so top secret they forgot how to make it. So there's this wonderful video. It's only six minutes long, but it chronicles – no, five minutes long. It chronicles exactly how we forgot to make the building blocks of the H-bomb. So I've just posted this video to my Facebook page if you want to read it. I mean, watch it. Uh, Facebook.com slash Moranofan. It's a very cleverly made video, cleverly produced. 800-848-9222. Very quickly, I want to take at least one call here, and then we're going to go to Mick West. Sally's in Rockland. Hello, Sally. Oh, good good morning, Frank. It's nice to talk to you. You too. Thanks, Sally. What's on your mind? Yeah, I, I, I called you a long time ago when you were talking about AI hallucinations. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. found that I found that very interesting, and I think that the reason I don't think that they're really hallucinations because that we're just personifying. When when AI does something, we endow it with with personality. But I think that the reason that it does like like it named the wrong person and it does these it makes these errors, um, I, I think it's because it can't leave anything blank. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. It's like, it's like on those multiple choice tests when the teacher would say, if you don't know the answer, put down anything because it's worse if you leave it blank. But you know what? I, I could buy that, but I feel like I frequently ask it questions and it responds by saying something like, as an AI model, I am unable to take a position on X or explain why. Why does it have no problem telling me that, but it makes up facts for other people? Well, maybe because you're asking it for an opinion and you're not asking it for a fact. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting theory, Sally, and it's one that I hadn't heard before. Sally, thank you very much. I got to run because uh, Mick West is waiting in the wings. We're going to talk chemtrails. This is the other side of midnight. You want to comment on anything else we're talking about? We'll talk with you after we chat with Mick West. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
other side of midnight presents. This is Frank's Conspiracy Hour. Welcome to the other side of midnight. Well, I am very pleased to tell you that uh, we are one of the most listened to overnight radio shows in the nation. In city after city where we're airing, we are just dominant in the ratings. Now, when you think of overnight radio, what do you think of? I'm not talking about late night radio. Late night radio could mean people like Larry King or Alan Combs. I'm talking about overnight radio, a time when every normal right thinking person is asleep. Well, I'll tell you what I have come to think of, especially on the AM band, but even on FM from time to time. The defining characteristic of late night radio going back, I think, to the days of Long John Nebel has been exploration of conspiracy theories. Art Bell did it. George Norrie does it. Long John Nebel was a master of it. And we have spent a fair amount of time having guests on this program and having callers promote or explain, debate, question, give commentary on one conspiracy theory or another. Some come across as pretty credible. Others, I think you have to be a total lunatic to uh, to believe. But that's the thing about this show. I like to think we present everything in a judgment-free area, and we see where the facts go. Well, a gentleman who has been exploring a number of these conspiracy theories for a long time and has developed a reputation as something of a conspiracy debunker with theory after theory, especially as it relates to contrails, something I know almost nothing about, but something that callers constantly call about and people frequently write to me about, is Mick West. Mick West is a writer, an investigator, a coder, and the author of the book Escaping... The rabbit hole. Mick, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me. Very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Mick, what sparked your interest in being, let's call it, a a conspiracy skeptic? How'd you get started in this? It actually started a very long time ago. uh, And it actually started with my very first kind of forays into the internet before the internet was the internet. I was uh, discussing things on bulletin boards where you had to use a dial-up modem to get into them and you, you wouldn't get a reply from someone until the next day. But even back then, I kind of enjoyed kind of the back and forth of just kind of exchanging ideas with people. And then kind of over the years, I just got more and more interested in stuff like uh, science and uh, pseudoscience. And I enjoyed kind of explaining uh, both science and explaining where pseudoscience goes wrong. And then that just kind of led into various different topics one of which was the chemtrails conspiracy theory. So I've Uh, heard the term chemtrails for years. I've also heard the term contrails for years. I I hear uh, some of the audience actually shouting at their radios right now, saying, mm -hmm. what do you mean you've heard the term? They've been uh, destroying our lives for decades now. But for people that are a little less familiar with the concept of either contrails or chemtrails, what are they? Are they the same thing? And explain to the uninitiated what the theory behind them is. Well, a contrail is something that's been observed for like a really long time. It is basically uh, the trail that you sometimes see uh, left behind planes, high-altitude high planes when they're flying in the sky. They'll sometimes leave a trail behind them. And that is actually a condensation trail. 
it's essentially the same as uh, when you breathe out on a cold day or if it's really cold and you look at your car exhaust, you'll see this kind of little cloud formed. And a contrail is actually just a type of cloud. If you look it up in the, the World Meteorological uh, Organization, it's listed as a type of cloud. It's called uh, Cirrus homogenitus, which is a man-made cirrus cloud. So all it is, a contrail, is a cloud, that trail behind a plane. But a chemtrail is supposedly a trail left behind a plane that contains uh, chemicals that have been added, chemicals other than the normal things you would find in jet exhaust. So the idea there is that someone, the government or the people in charge, are uh, spraying us with some kind of chemical or they're spraying chemicals for some kind of nefarious purpose. And people confuse the two things. So we have contrails, which are a normal thing. But then people look up and they see contrails and they don't really understand exactly what they're looking at. They might not look exactly as they remember them or they're told they might look different. And they start thinking that what they're looking at is actually these these chemtrails, these secretly sprayed trails, when actually they're just looking at contrails. Oh, we're going to get to the, the truth about chemtrails in just a moment. But for the people that have been talking about this or legitimately concerned about it over the years, what is the thought about what those chemicals might be and what the rationale is for why those chemicals are being sprayed into the clouds or into the air? Well, the the theory started back in the late 90s, and the idea back then was that uh, it, it was this new type of jet fuel that was being used, JP-8, and the, there was concern that it might be harmful to people's health. And, you know, whenever people get concerned about, like, health effects of things, like, you know, theories uh, are, are swift to follow. So people started making, like, theories about, like, what are these trails that are planes leaving behind? Is it the, the JP-8 jet fuel? And that kind of morphed over the years into, like, oh, the government is spraying us with, with chemicals to, to do to like make us weaker and spread germs or to to like spread some kind of nanorobots or something like that. But the the more common and the, the more modern version of the theory is that the spraying is being done to try to control the climate and try to control the weather. Some kind of uh, what they call geoengineering, where you actually try to change the climate of the planet. So the idea there is that they're, in theory, spraying things secretly to try to uh, either make global warming worse or to make it better, depending on which version of the uh, the theory you, you listen to. We're talking with Mick West. His book is Escaping the Rabbit Hole. You can learn more about him uh, by going to his website, mickwest.com, and that links you to all the other websites that, uh, that he's involved with, metabunk.org, contrailscience.com, a whole bunch of others as well. But mickwest.com, standard spelling of Mick, standard spelling of West, that'll be your guide to all things Mick West related. Now, Mick, is it really such a crazy idea uh, to think that uh, either the government or private industry might be taking some sort of shortcuts for some purpose or another that lead to deleterious effects on people's health? We've seen private businesses uh, like uh, Texaco in Ecuador, for instance, um, not really have much of a regard for people's health or the environment if it means... uh, um, pursuing the bottom line of what they want to pursue. We've seen this with certain types of gasoline over the years. It's one of the reasons leaded gasoline's not there. We've seen it with certain types of pesticides over the years. Is it really crazy to think- 
type of jet fuel may both cause planes to go faster, but at the same time do a lot of damage to the public or the environment? I don't think it's uh, really crazy because, like you said, things like this have uh, happened before. You know, pollution is an issue and industry likes to cover up pollution because they don't want to be regulated. They make more money if they're, they're allowed to, to pollute. But, you know, we have pretty uh, strict laws now when it comes to that, We're like with the Clean Air Act, uh, which was, you know, several decades ago now. And there's a lot of regulation of things like the, the composition of jet fuel. And jet engines themselves are very kind of uh, fiddly in the way that they work. It's, it's kind of difficult to actually add things to jet fuel to make it do anything else. But really, you've got to look at the, what is the actual evidence for this. It's all very well saying, well, it sounds like something that the government would do. But is there actually any evidence that they're doing it? And the most common bit of evidence people point at is just these these trails, which they think don't look like contrails. When in fact, they actually do. They look pretty, well, they, they are. They are exactly the same as contrails because they are, in fact, contrails. And it's just it's one of those things where if you've not looked at something in depth before and then you stare at it and you stare at it for a long time, it kind of looks weird because you've never really examined it before. And I think that's a lot of what's actually going on. People are naturally suspicious of, of, of industry and people in power, and that's fine. But then they add on to that by like listening to this chemtrails conspiracy theory and starting to buy into the things like, you know, this, this trail shouldn't look like this or this trail shouldn't do that, when really the trails are just doing exactly what they've done uh, ever since planes were were able to fly high enough to make them. So what's the deal? Uh, what does the evidence suggest and what does your research suggest is the truth behind chemtrails? Uh, well, the truth really is that there's no evidence that the government is spraying anything on us secretly. Now, the government actually sprays things on us deliberately now and then. They, they, they do things for uh, mosquito abatement, for example. So they're actually kind of spraying a, a toxin out of the back of a plane uh, there's things like cloud seeding, which is a real thing. This is actually weather uh, weather modification is a real thing that's been done quite openly since the 1950s. And uh, it, but it's very different to the chemtrail theory because chemtrails are all about these these trails that are left behind planes high in the sky. But weather modification is just something that is done at a low altitude using small planes, and it doesn't even leave a trail. It's something that you do. You just spray this silver iodide onto a, a cloud. So the actual evidence that people uh, give to support the theory, and there's a lot of it. There's, you know, it's one of these things like, you know, say, the moon landing hoax. There's endless, endless pages of, of different types of uh, supposed evidence. None of it actually stands up. You know, I've spent many, many years looking at all these claims of evidence, and I've pretty much explained every single one of them. So it sounds like there is almost no evidence for the chemtrail conspiracy, the, based on what you're saying and what you've put on your website here. This is true. But, I mean, on the other hand, you could say there's a lot because you, you, the, it only resolves to nothing if you're aware of what the, the explanations are, the mm -hmm. debunks. So for someone new to the theory... They're going to come in and they're going to like say, oh, well, you know, contrails never persisted. Uh, they didn't. They used to fade away. And then I will show them some some explanation of that. I'll show them like these old photos and books on weather. And then they'll move to the next thing. They'll say, well, look about look at these photos of barrels 
Uh, obviously, that's something that's being used for spraying. Or, or look at these chemical tests. You know, people have been testing their soil or their, their, their air or their water, and it shows these certain results. Then I'll, then I'll explain that. And then you know, they'll say, oh, but what about these patents? What about these government discussions of geoengineering? You know, what about these, these whistleblowers? Why are these, these, these planes flying in grids in the sky? And there's this endless, endless like claims of evidence that have been repeated like, basically since uh, like about 20 years ago. The same things have been coming up over and over again. I've been explaining them to people, and people go, oh, yeah. But then a new set of people come along, they discover the claims, and it takes, takes them a while to actually discover that these things have all been debunked. And so we go on, round and round. Well, that, that leads me to my next question. Why do you have to keep uh, debunking these same theories over the mm-hmm. course of years? I mean, w- once Isaac Newton kind of explained gravity with the apple, I think gravity was pretty much settled. Why, once you've debunked the chemtrail issue, do you need to keep going ahead and debunking it five years later, ten years later? Why do certain conspiracy theories, including this one, sort of go away or at least retreat and then seem to come back into the forefront? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I actually wrote an article on that, on that subject, uh, called it Skeptical Recurrence and Decay. And what tends to happen is that uh, the conspiracy theories recur. They happen over and over again because conspiracy theories are fun. They're really interesting and they're very engaging and very, uh, they, they, they're, kind of, you know, they're, they're sexy to, to, to think about. But uh, the debunkings, they tend to kind of decay over the years. And you get things like uh, link rot, where if you go to a site and you, you, you see that half of pictures are missing or the, you click on a link and it doesn't work. Uh, and so unless you actually keep actively renewing these, these debunking sites like, like I've been trying to do, then a new version of the chemtrails conspiracy theory will just pop up fresh and new, like some new uh, conspiracy theory spreader will, will start spreading it. And it will be new to a whole bunch of people. And since they are in a world where they're, they're consuming that type of content, they're not going to immediately find uh, my explanations of it. And when they do a search, they'll, they'll find like mainstream uh, articles and they'll, they'll, they'll say, oh, obviously that's part of the cover-up. So they, they'll, they'll ignore those and they don't really address the, the particular claims anyway. So it's, it's a, a real challenge to actually kind of keep up with the, uh, the continual recurrence of conspiracy theories like this. You have a, a very interesting book. I haven't read it yet, but I'm looking forward to, to reading it. It's called Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. And this is one of the things that uh, really attracted me to you as a personality, because I would find sometimes when I'm t- talking about these things with friends, family members, or strangers, I try to uh, have these conversations with respect. And and a lot of times the people that are persistent in whatever conspiracy theory we're talking about, maybe it's uh, 9-11 was an inside job, maybe it's uh, the earth is flat, maybe it's something else. They are just almost dug in to these certain theories, whatever the case may be, almost like a religion. Uh, they're not really mm-hmm. terribly interested in uh, instance after instance about learning the truth. They're interested in evangelizing and convincing you why.
why the earth is flat or uh, we blew up the World Trade Center ourselves or something along those lines. Uh, Tell me about this book, Escaping the Rabbit Hole, and more important for people listening to us right now, if they have family members, friends that are into Pizzagate, QAnon, whatever the case may be, how do they have conversations with uh, with friends, loved ones, or strangers in a way that's respectful and that uh, that uses facts and logic? Yeah, the book uh, kind of came about as a result of you know, my interest in this this topic and the interactions that I had with with uh, a variety of people. Kind of the the backbone of the book is a series of interviews that I do with people who were once some kind of conspiracy theorist and eventually got out of it. And some of these people were really, really deep. You know, the type of people where they would, you know, if you tell them one thing, they'll they'll throw 10 things back in your face. And if you if you persist, they'll start accusing you of being like a government agent. And it's, it's with a person like that, it seems almost impossible. I mean, in fact, it, it does seem impossible. But these are all people who did actually get out. So, you know, that's the first lesson is that there is hope. Even though it seems like it's impossible, it seems like you're making no progress, it does actually happen. Um, and then I kind of, I give a three-step process, which is very, very simple. And the first step is maintaining effective communication, um, uh, maintaining an effective dialogue, essentially. The second step is supplying useful information. The third step is giving it time. Now, the most important step really is the first one, because if you don't have effective communication, if you don't have a clear dialogue with the person, then you're not going to get anywhere. If you're just throwing them debunks, if you're explaining things over and over again, you're not going to get anywhere because you're not really communicating with them. So the first step really is just to talk to them. And if they want to evangelize, you can talk about that. You can discuss the things they want to talk about because you've got to understand where they're coming from. And along with that, uh, you want them to understand where you are coming from. So you've got to kind of explain what your your situation is and try to try to ascertain how well they understand your situation. So you, you tell them like you know why you're concerned. Like, you know, I'm concerned because you're spending so much time doing this and it doesn't seem to me that the evidence adds up. And you know, what do you think is uh, the best evidence or what do you what actually got you into this or but um a very important part of establishing effective communication is establishing some kind of common ground. Uh, very often when you start talking to someone about something like this, it almost automatically falls into an adversarial discussion. Right. You start getting angry with the person or they start getting angry with you. And a lot of the time they will start getting angry with you by default because they expect you to be kind of on the offensive because they're used to people mocking their their beliefs. You know, say they're a a 9-11 truther or a QAnon person. They're used to being outsiders. They're used to being uh, ridiculed and mocked and attacked. So you've got to establish first that you are being respectful. You know, ask them about their beliefs without mocking their beliefs and try to gain some kind of understanding of them. And it's only when you've actually established that that you can kind of get to the next stage which is kind of gently feeling around the possibility of supplying them with useful information. Try to find the what they believe in that you could possibly make a difference on uh, and then find things that you can tell them. 
there, uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Mick West. You can check out his book, Escaping the Rabbit Hole. It's available on Amazon. You could also go to his website, mickwest.com, for an explanation of uh, a lot of the issues that we're talking about. There are some conspiracy theories that I don't think are very credible, which I find very harmless. I mean, um, if you have 9,000 Sasquatch sightings, I mean, who really cares? What difference does that does that really make to anybody? There are theories that, uh, that I find uh, quite harmful and quite scary. I mentioned QAnon, and look, we've seen uh, the, the, the role that QAnon played in getting some people to storm the Capitol on January 6th. But really, there are so many other deeper conspiracy theories that are that go far beyond that. One that comes to mind is uh, is Holocaust denial. And one everybody listening to this has someone in their life that probably adheres to one wacky conspiracy theory or another. And this might be a loved one, a family member, a brother, a cousin, a brother in law, whatever the case may be. And. A lot of times the person wants to maintain their relationship with that person, but and and they what they do by extension is just not discuss that subject. They don't discuss the earth is flat, Holocaust denial, whatever the case may be, in order to still maintain harmony at the Thanksgiving table or uh, whatever social interaction we're we're talking about here. Uh, Two part question, Mick. One. Is that a self-defeating strategy? Should people engage with the folks in their lives that ascribe to very harmful conspiracy theories? That's part one of the question. And uh, part two is what do you do if – well, let me begin with part one because part two, I guess, gets a little bit more complicated. Should people continue to engage with people in discussing XYZ conspiracy theory? Uh, you should, but you should only do it if it's going to be productive. If you know that like raising this subject is going to start a big argument, then it's not going to be very helpful. You've got to try to uh, get to it a different way. You've got to approach it from a different direction, or you've got to talk about something else. Like instead of talking about like Holocaust denial, you could you could you could talk about some. You could talk about pretty much anything. I mean, really, the the first thing you want to do is to establish some kind of dialogue with a person. And if you're estranged from them, then it could be anything. You could talk about football. But then you, you do want to kind of address the elephant in the room because they, they know that they have these beliefs and they know that you disagree with them. Uh, so you can gently kind of sidle up to it. You could perhaps even make a little joke about it because you have this shared understanding that you know they believe something and you don't believe it. And if you feel like it's right, you can you can make a little a little joke about you know their belief. Or you could just mention something that you think is similar. But you have to do it very, very carefully. And if they start getting angry, you know, if you feel like you can't actually talk them through that, then step back and don't, you know, don't worry about uh, you know, having to address the issue, it will take time. And if you push it, it, it might end up taking more time. So slow but steady wins the race. The win wins the race when it comes to uh, discussing conspiracy theories. Talking with Mick West, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time late at night, Mick. 
I have hosted uh, just about every conspiracy theorist uh, that there is, and not necessarily every person, but every conspiracy theory. We never went to the moon. Uh, we've talked about that. We've uh, talked about just about everything there is. And very, I would never uh, shout anyone down, never cut an interview short. The only time I ever cut an interview short was uh, I had a fellow on this program that maintained that the uh, children that were shot in the uh, mm-hmm. Sandy Hook massacre weren't really shot and didn't really die. I I couldn't bring myself to continue the conversation. But what I've noticed is that a lot of folks that ascribe to one conspiracy theory or another, they are experts in one specific aspect of it. Doesn't matter how whacked out the conspiracy theory seems on its face, they are really informed, at least they sound informed, about one or two specific aspects of it, and then they sort of filibuster and bury you with information. Mm -hmm. Now, most people listening to us right now, they're not going to go home and become an expert in architecture and uh, and explosives in order to prove to their cousin that the uh, September 11th attacks were not an inside job. What do you suggest about how to talk to people who are, who want to filibuster and talk to you for three hours about the boiling point of steel and jet fuel. Yeah. Yeah, they usually have like a large number of things that they uh, they can re- reel out like that. And that's what we call uh, a gish gallop. There was a famous preacher called Gish who reeled out 200 proofs for the existence of God every time someone uh, questioned him on it. But yeah, you don't want to go and try to knock down every single thing. What you want to try to do is find something they don't believe in. You know, find something about the conspiracy theory that they don't believe in. Say it's like 9-11, you know, they perhaps believe that the uh, the Twin Towers were brought down by controlled demolition. But you know, if they believe that, then do they believe that a plane hits the Pentagon? So some people think that a cruise missile hit the Pentagon. And if they believe that, do they believe that uh, the planes were holograms? Find something that they don't believe in, and then kind of back that towards the things that they do believe in. Because what you're looking for here is an issue that's kind of on on the line between things they believe in and things they don't believe mm. in. Because uh, conspiracy theories exist on a spectrum. There's, there's very banal, boring conspiracy theories like, you know, Big Pharma cheats in their test results. And then there's you know wacky, crazy conspiracy theories like King Charles is a, a reptile who eats babies. Right. Uh, and then there's things in between, which are like you know chemtrails, and then things like uh, 9/11. And even 9/11 will have you know more wacky theories, like some like the the simplest 9/11 theory will be that George Bush uh, let it happen. And the more complicated one would be that uh, laser beams from space blew up the towers, and there were no planes. Uh, so you, you want to find kind of where they are on that spectrum. And everybody draws a line on the spectrum, and I call that the, the line of demarcation. Like it demarks between things they believe, things they don't believe. You want to find that region and focus on that region, and if possible, focus on one thing that is just right on the cusp of things that they, they believe or don't believe, and ask them, you know, why do you believe this but not this? Why, do you be- why don't you believe something that's just on the other side of the line? If you believe that uh, explosives were planted in the World Trade Center, why don't you believe that a cruise missile was used on the Pentagon? 
and you're getting them to think about mm. the justification for their beliefs. Because it's not just about what they believe, it's what they don't believe. And everybody draws the line somewhere. You know, you think crazy conspiracy theorists will believe anything, but there will be things that they don't believe. So if you ask them, why don't you believe this? You can often transfer that reason onto something that's a little bit further down the spectrum and get them to think about it, at least. Mick, you got to come back, because uh, there's a lot of other things I want to ask you, but uh, I want to end with two two final things. One is, has there any conspiracy, the- has there ever been a conspiracy theory which started out, essentially, as a conspiracy theory that was later proven to be true? And if you look this up, uh, there are some people that point to one or another. As far as you're concerned, is there anything that started out as a conspiracy theory that came to be proven as fact? Not really, because they didn't really start out as full-blown conspiracy theories. It's not like there was something like where they you know, said we never went to the moon and then we found out that we never went to the moon. There are things that we discover later that were conspiracies, uh, but people weren't like theorizing them about them in the same way. So there really weren't conspiracies that were proved to be true, but that certainly conspiracies happen. You know, definitely, like, there are people in power and in industry and in government who conspire to do things. You know, we should be aware of that and we should be careful. But if something's a conspiracy theory, that generally means that it doesn't have very good evidence backing it up. And you want to start looking at the evidence. Lastly, one question that I ask every conspiracy theorist who's written a book, who's produced a documentary, who does a radio show or a podcast about it. The one thing I always ask is, are you doing this to make money? Now, just as there's uh, money to be made uh, peddling uh, the XYZ conspiracy theory in many different forms, there are some skeptics in our audience right now, believe it or not, conspiratorial skeptics, who are saying that you're refusing to acknowledge the obvious truth about chemtrails or about anything else that you cover on your website simply because you've made a career for yourself as a conspiracy debunker. And if you acknowledge the truth behind XYZ conspiracy theory, then there goes your image as a conspiracy Mm -hmm. debunker. Address the skeptics in our audience who might be asking that question, Mick. I I make very little money out of this. The only money I'm really making is from my book, and that's a few thousand dollars over like three years now, and a a little bit of money from articles and TV appearances. But I'm essentially retired. I was a video game programmer. I I was one of the co-creators of the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater video game. So I did very well back then, and I was able to retire. I I don't need the money. So I'm doing this because I think it's important and because I enjoy doing it. And uh, that's really all there is to it. You know, I'm, I'm not in it for the money. Mick West, I very much appreciate the time. I hope we could talk again. Uh, certainly, yes. If you want to comment on any portion of my conversation with Mick West, agree, disagree, thoughts, questions, have at it. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
I want to thank uh, Kenneth because he, for the second day in a row, was kind enough to alert me that uh, there was not water here. So I did today the same thing that I did yesterday. I brought in my own water, and I brought in water for other people if they want it. So, um, see, there's no constitutional right to workplace-provided water. So all I'm asking for is a heads-up from the people that are here, and I'll bring in my own water happily and bring in water for other people. But something interesting happened here. I was uh, getting some tea at the top of the hour, and walking back to the studio, get ready for my really interesting comparison of Cactus Jack and the Donald Trump verdict. And I pass the office, open door, I didn't open it, door ajar, to our... uh, I don't. I don't know what her official title is. Uh, she's great. We've been on. She's got a real personality. I think she's involved in social media. She does graphics. She's she's cool. Uh, Gina Limberopoulos. She did a music review one time. Uh, do we know Gina's official title? Anybody? No, nobody knows. Okay, uh, that doesn't bode well for her. But she she's involved in a lot of different things, and um, she's great. She's got a great personality. She's a fun person, and and I'd love to have her in studio one of these days. So I'm looking by, walking by her desk, poke my head in. Don't go in. I didn't cross the threshold. And on her desk, she's got maybe five, six, seven bottles of Poland Spring bottled water. She has been hoarding this water. I mean, is the reason that we have a water shortage here because Gina is squirreling all this water away? Who can say? Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. And for those of you that are curious, yes, I finally, I gave a 24-hour warning, but I finally did eat that uh, Japanese spicy tuna roll (laughs) ball. Um, And I will say it was okay. It was not great. It was almost all white rice, which I don't even like to eat. I don't even like to eat rice. It was $2.89 that somebody paid for this. They still had the price on there. Oh it was okay. God. It was, I, I thought as I was eating it that it was, that I could use some soy sauce, but I didn't see any soy sauce. And then just now I um, poked my head in the refrigerator and there was soy sauce in there that I missed. And ultimately it was not worth the carbs of the rice. So I think the, whoever, whoever's, Spicy tuna roll ball I stole was. They will get their vengeance on me when I weigh myself uh, later this afternoon when I wake up because I gain, I even look at a carb and I gain weight, right? And so now, uh, obviously, it's not the least healthy thing in the world in terms of carb options, but um, it's not going to be a good situation for me. So I do regret that. Shouldn't have eaten it, but... um, I wish it was better tasting. Honestly, I I wouldn't regret it. You know, the the, the old saying is the juice is the juice worth the squeeze. In this instance, the juice was not worth the squeeze. So that's uh, that's where we are. That's where we are. By the way, you guys can stop emailing me and asking me if my wife is selling clothing. 
her Instagram was hacked, as I've posted and now talked about three times. And yet, I am still getting daily multiple emails from listeners saying some version or another of the same thing. Hey, your wife messaged me. I'm going to support her new clothing business. That's great. Good for her. And I'm thinking to myself, my wife has never met you. Do you really think the first thing she's ever going to say to you is, hey, buy my clothes in a private direct message? I just don't understand how people are so taken in by this hack. Don't even don't get it. If you want to see, um, if you want to see, for updates on the on Hackgate, Rachel Hackgate, you can follow me on Instagram at Morano Vision. That's Morano Vision. Uh, although be warned, whether it's photos or videos, you're going to be, um, you're going to be subjected to a lot of Carmine photos and a lot of Carmine videos. But if you don't mind that, then follow me on Instagram at Morano Vision. All right, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. to get to as many calls as we can here. Diane in Brooklyn has been patiently holding. Hello, Diane. Yeah, hi. As far as the chemtrails, that's been established a long time ago. Don't tell me that you forget the big X's that they used to make in the sky that would stay there for quite a while, unlike contrails that dissipate very quickly, and then they would gradually pull apart like cotton candy. Don't tell me you forget that. There was a thing on the Internet years ago. I don't know if it's still there. It was, what in the world do they spring? And it describes these chemtrails, and they're mostly uh, aluminum and strontium and something else. And, and, and it was supposed to be for geoengineering, well, I'm but convinced. I'm sure all that aluminum is not good for humans. That settles it. And, and this has been – and they, they stopped making the X's because – I think because too many people became aware of what they were. Do you remember the big X's that they used to put in the sky? I, I actually don't, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. Um, you don't? What, no, I don't. But what do you think the uh, motivation is? W- why do you think they're... It was because it was supposed to be for geoengineering to cool down the earth, but actually it did the opposite mm. because it made a belt around it in, in the evening. But, 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 you know, because all this, like, climate change and global warming, it's all from sun surges. It is. That, it's happening on other planets. And uh, the thing of it is, and the thing of it is, that, that look it up. What in the world are they spraying? It's a seven-part thing. And I remember watching the whole thing. And I'm telling you, a lot of doctors, scientists, people, they they all are part of this uh, this. Um, uh, you know this this uh whatever you call it that mm. that that was on the internet and i it's it's a fact and i and and I'll bet you if you ask your callers if they remember the big x's see too many people became aware of what those x's were. I can't believe if you ever looked up in the sky in the nineties you'd see these big x's and they would stay there. These con- contrails are condensation, exactly what he's talking about, the difference between hot air and cold air. And they dissipate very quickly, but these chemtrails would stay there. Then they started, after the X's, they started just 
putting them up in straight lines, you know. And unless you knew what you were looking at, you wouldn't notice them. And that's exactly why they did it, because too many people became aware of what they were. Diane, thank you. I got to run. Those, uh, By the way, uh, those of you wondering, uh, Kenneth said that was the best caller on hold. So imagine who the worst one is. Come we'll on, find Kenneth. out in a moment. All right. Um, maybe next time we'll have a prepared debate between Mick West and Diane. I mean, how can you argue with that? She made a very compelling case. You know, that's what we do. We present both sides and let you pick for yourself. Your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I like sports. I like sports um, as a participant. I like to uh, go to the playground and watch people play sports, even a local high school game. Uh, In terms of professional sports, my interests are pretty much limited to baseball, football, and if I end up in a bar and uh, ESPN has a pickleball game on, I'll poke my head up and say I could do that. By the way, I've noticed that. I think I've played pickleball three times in my entire life, and I watch the people that play pickleball on ESPN, and maybe this is one of those things where people that are that excel at something make it look easy. I watch the people that play pickleball on ESPN, and these are the professional pickleball players. I honestly think, and I'm probably wrong, I'll admit this, I honestly think that anybody who has ever played pickleball is almost as good as the professionals that are playing pickleball on ESPN. I, I realize that's a naive thing to say. I realize it's probably foolish. It looks almost exactly like what, what I'm doing when I play in the park. And I am not an experienced pickleball player. Now, point is, I don't really follow the NBA. I don't, uh, I don't follow it any of the time. I'm glad that uh, some of the New York teams, uh, New York area teams, are in the basketball playoffs and in the NHL playoffs. I think the last time that I attempted, operative word being attempt, uh, the last time that I attempted to watch an entire NBA playoff game was the night of the O.J. Simpson um, White Ford Bronco chase when the Maya, when the Rockets were playing the Knicks. And I don't think I've watched a full playoff game in almost 30 years, honestly, since 1994. So I don't know what's going on, really, in terms of basketball. However, I did see something that I thought was very interesting. The... Denver Nuggets 
were playing the Phoenix Suns, and Kenneth, who's a sports meister and follows basketball, uh, Kenneth, where is this series, this Nuggets-Suns series, and how far is it along in terms of being over? Uh, I believe the Nuggets won last night, right? I got to check that. Right. I'm not I'm not too big on the other NBA teams. I mainly follow the Knicks, but yeah, the Nuggets won last so night. So how many teams are left? Four, six? Uh, yes, six teams left. Six teams. It's not a trick question. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth here. No, uh, no I know. Well, I just said I don't. I don't really follow the overall NBA playoffs like that. I see. Well, uh, that was a very clever attempt on Kenneth's part, who does know this stuff, uh, to make me look foolish because I endorsed his sports knowledge, and clearly he proves he knows even less about the NBA than I do. But anyway. Eight teams, eight teams. Eight teams. Okay, that's a big difference from four and six. All right. only doing things that anybody could do. Well, well, best of luck to um, all eight teams that are still in it. But anyway, so uh, game five, the Nuggets were playing the Suns. Denver Nuggets, Phoenix Suns. And one of the players, one of the stars of the Denver Nuggets, uh, Nikola Jokic. Jokic? Jokic. Jokic, excuse me. He goes into the stands after a ball. After the ball ends up in the stand. And he's going for the ball. He's making an effort to go for a ball. And it looks like he gets into a little bit of a scuffle with one of the fans. And it looks like one of the fans kind of is being difficult in terms of letting the player get the ball and kind of pushes him back. Looks that way. And it looks like Jokic shoves this fan. Well, it turns out the fan that was shoved (laughs) was the owner of the Phoenix Suns, Matt Matt Ishbia. Uh, That was in game four, not game five. Um, This is what it sounded like to the viewers. Listen to this. Teams will go to their respective benches, see a Kogi landing. That's what happened there. Jokic, boy, trying to rip it away from Matt Isby, and then the little shove. Oh, wow, boy. You know, Matt Isby did play for Tom Izzo, so he's unafraid, I'm sure. A little bit of a maybe a flop from Isby there. Wow. You got to sell it to the officials, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, we kid, but that could have gotten ugly. Thankfully, everyone was able to quickly regather their composure. That's what I don't think Ishbi appreciated. Then Jokic. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but yeah. So the basketball player Jokic shoved the owner of the opposing team, Matt Ishbia. and they gave Jokic what they call a technical foul. This happened on Sunday. And um, the owner, Ishbia, was sitting courtside, and he um, basically, Jokic hit the Suns owner with an elbow. Ishbia took to Twitter, which is where we settle all our disputes, on Monday to address the situation. This is what he said. Now, remember, his team won game four. Great win for the Suns last night in an amazing series so far. That should be and is the only story. That's what he tweeted. Suspending or fining anyone over last night's incident would not be right. I have a lot of respect for Jokic and don't want to see anything like that 
excited for Game 5, go Suns. Now, it sounds like he's being very magnanimous, but he's not. This owner should have never been in a position where he's fighting over the ball with another player. And certainly, if this other player, Jokic, is actually going to be assessed a technical foul for that behavior, mixing it up with one of the fans... And Jokic, to his credit, did not apologize. He defended his actions after the game, and it didn't seem to hurt his play. He scored 53 points, had 11 assists, and Jokic said, the fan put the hand on me first. I thought the league was supposed to protect us. Maybe I am wrong. I know who he is, but he's a fan, isn't he? You know what? Good for him. A lesser man would have apologized uh, when he did nothing wrong. And I think the league... And Ishbia, the owner that uh, that put a hand on uh, Jokic first, I think they both owe Jokic an apology. For starters, why are the fans in a position to touch basketball players? And th- that shouldn't happen. Two, why is the owner, if you believe Jokic's version of events, and I think the video kind of does support this, Why is the owner touching a player, uh, uh, any player, but especially a player on the opposing team, and then he just sits there on his hands while Jokic gets called for a technical foul? That owner should have stepped up and said, whoa, 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 I'm sorry, things got a little bit carried away here. Don't give him a technical foul. So I I didn't like that whole episode. I'm glad that um, Ishbia was not making this World War III by taking to to Twitter and calling for Ishbia to be... Um, the the on the receiving end of an Imus style suspension, but this is uh, really interesting, and I'm eager to see where this goes. This could be the end of it, but I'm curious what you think. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I'm going to those of you that are holding Diane, Eric, Isabel, Joe, James, Rick. I'm going to get to all of you. Meantime, David in uh, formerly David in Huntington, now David in the Bronx. He sent me this article, which, uh, see, unlike the articles that Curtis Lewis sends me, this was actually one that I hadn't read. It was in ProPublica, and it, it's a lengthy story, but it's all about this, uh, former, <laughs> this former NFL player who persuaded politicians that his child ID kits help find missing kids. Now, spoiler alert, there's no evidence that they do. So this former player... Kenny Hansmeyer, he has this national child identification program, and at least 11 states have agreed to distribute these fingerprinting kits, and some are spending millions, millions for these kits, even though similar kits are available for free. Last fall, millions of public school children in Texas brought home envelopes that bore the state state seal and read, a gift of safety from our family to yours. Tucked into each envelope was an ink pad and a piece of paper prompting parents to take their children's fingerprints, record their physical attributes, and get a DNA sample by having them suck on the corner of the form. Boy, how things have changed from the time I was in school. Every envelope also came with a warning. Over 800,000 children are missing every year. That's one every 40 seconds. The fingerprinting kits were produced by the National Child Identification Program, a company based in Texas 
that has persuaded lawmakers and attorneys general in at least 11 states to provide these kits and spent millions of dollars on taxpayer money in Texas alone. Lawmakers allocated about $5.7 million on kits for all students in kindergarten through eighth grade. They are currently considering funding additional kits for the next two years. But there are kits that do exactly the same thing available for free from nonprofit groups and from governmental entities. And claims made by this company, the National Child Identification Program, are about the number of missing children are completely wrong. And the effectiveness of these kits is completely exaggerated, not according to me, but according to missing child and law enforcement experts. You know, so the fun, so this looks to be a total scam that this former football player has come up with. Maybe more will come of this, but it looks like this guy has made millions make, uh, using his connections as a former athlete and a guy that knows how to game the system a little bit. And um, it looks like this fella has been able to make millions selling something which is readily available for free. And you know what? It's given me some ideas. There's ice that's for free, right? Right. My my refrigerator has an ice maker. Or I could just get an ice tray, stick it in my freezer. It'll make ice. What if I make my ice for free and then I just go out in front of my house Start selling the ice. You know, we have coffee here for free, right? Very, very generous uh, of ownership and management to make coffee available for us for free. What if I brewed a whole bunch of coffee and then just went right in front of the radio network, stood outside because my day ends around the time a lot of people's day begins, just start selling that coffee. Sell something that people can get for free for money. What about that? What else? Maybe I can go and sell dirt that I come across. Carmine's very into eating dirt now. So that's, uh, or trying to eat dirt. So I could take some of this dirt that he comes across on our walk. I'll sell it as topsoil. This could be a new trend. So anyway, David in uh, Brooklyn, formerly in Huntington, sent me this article saying the only thing that surprises me about this scam is that the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase is not involved with it. And, you know, I am a big fan of Ted DiBiase uh, as both a person and a, and a wrestler. And I did not realize that he was involved in that whole Brett Favre scandal with the University of Alabama, but apparently he was. So, uh, in any event, speaking of Brett Favre, you want to comment on any of this, you can. Brett Favre is one of the people who has taken to Twitter to announce two things. One, that he's standing with Tucker, and he shared a video of Megyn Kelly talking about how Tucker is is trying to uh, make, uh, not Tucker, how uh, Fox News is trying to make Tucker look bad. And he takes this Megyn Kelly clip and shares it and says, I'm with Tucker. Time to boycott Fox until they come to their senses and let the man speak. So all I'm thinking is, you know, is this really the kind of help that uh, Tucker Carlson wants? Brett Favre, who is uh, the, the school I misstated, the school is involved with this major scandal 
with state welfare funds from Mississippi, and yet he's announcing that he's going to be boycotting Fox News. But if I'm a Fo- if I'm Fox, isn't this kind of the best news you could happen? You could have happen. Brett Favre is this close. Brett Favre, there's a movement to get him thrown out of the NFL Hall of Fame. Well, what's next? Fox News has lost Brett Favre? You're kidding me. What's next? Might they lose David Duke? Oh, my God. Could O.J. Simpson be the next to join the boycott of the Fox News channel? Oh, my goodness. I mean, how soon are we going to see the uh, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, boycott Fox News? I mean, uh, I'd just as soon tell him, uh, thanks, thanks, Brett Favre, but uh, I got this one. Uh, Speaking of Tucker Carlson, uh, Ben Smith alluded to this earlier in the program, but he has taken to Twitter to announce that that is going, well, let me play for you his announcement. He's back, sort of. He announced Tuesday that uh, he was going to relaunch his program on Twitter. This is the totality of Tucker Carlson's announcement yesterday. Hey, it's Tucker Carlson. You often hear people say the news is full of lies, but most of the time that's not exactly right. Much of what you see on television or read the New York Times is in fact true in the literal sense. It could pass one of the media's own fact checks. Lawyers would be willing to sign off on it. In fact, they may have. But that doesn't make it true. It's not true. At the most basic level, the news you consume is a lie, a lie of the stealthiest and most insidious kind. Facts have been withheld on purpose, along with proportion and perspective. You are being manipulated. How does that work? Let's see. If I tell you that a man has been unjustly arrested for armed robbery, that is not, strictly speaking, a lie. He may have been framed. At this point, there's been no trial, so no one can really say. But if I don't mention the fact that the same man has been arrested for the same crime six times before, am I really informing you? No, I'm not. I'm misleading you. And that's what the news media are doing in every story that matters every day of the week, every week of the year. What's it like to work in a system like that? After more than 30 years in the middle of it, we could tell you stories. The best you can hope for in the news business at this point is the freedom to tell the fullest truth that you can. But there are always limits. And you know that if you bump up against those limits often enough, you will be fired for it. That's not a guess. It's guaranteed. Every person who works in English language media understands that. The rule of what you can't say defines everything. It's filthy, really, and it's utterly corrupting. You can't have a free society if people aren't allowed to say what they think is true. Speech is the fundamental prerequisite for democracy. That's why it's enshrined in the first of our constitutional amendments. Amazingly, as of tonight, there aren't many platforms left that allow free speech. The last big one remaining in the world, the only one, is Twitter, where we are now. Twitter has long served as the place where our national conversation incubates and develops. Twitter is not a partisan site. Everybody's allowed here, and we think that's a good thing. And yet, for the most part, the news that you see analyzed on Twitter comes from media organizations that are themselves thinly disguised propaganda outlets. You see it on cable news. You talk about it on Twitter. The result may feel like a debate, but actually the gatekeepers are still in charge. We think that's a bad system. 
We know exactly how it works, and we're sick of it. Starting soon, we'll be bringing a new version of the show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. We bring some other things, too, which we'll tell you about. But for now, we're just grateful to be here. Free speech is the main right that you have. Without it, you have no others. See you soon. Well, I think that's great. I love that Tucker is taking his message directly to the people. I think he's going to get a big audience on Twitter. And I think uh, it could be a great thing for the platform. And I think he could ultimately make a lot of money. I think, you know, there's no reason for him to, an advertiser to uh, sponsor a company to sponsor Tucker. Now they can just make an agreement with Tucker directly. You know, it's funny. um, One of the things that's going on is the audience is still hemorrhaging. It was down about a million last week in that time slot. And now in that time slot, as of Monday night, Kaylee McEnany, who I know is a perfectly nice woman, she lost another 300,000 on top of the million they already lost. And I'm not blaming her for that. I think the audience is just ticked off. They want to they wanna see Tucker and hear Tucker. But um, in any event, the audience is shrinking. It's the incredible shrinking audience at 8 p.m. on Fox News. You know what's not shrinking? The ad revenue. The ads are skyrocketing. All these advertisers that refuse to be on Fox News in prime time, even though the audience is dwindling, the advertisers are coming back. So um, I think it's an interesting decision. I don't know if this is going to be his permanent home or if this is just something he's going to do while Fox keeps him off television with this non-compete. Because, look, it's not a bad place to be. You go on Twitter and do your show directly on Twitter, make money on Twitter, have a voice on Twitter, and then Fox pays you $20 million to not be on TV elsewhere? It's, it's We should all be fired in such a spectacular manner. Uh, I love what he said there. I agree with everything he said there, uh, by and large. I mean... Twitter is a great spot for free speech, but Elon Musk has censored people. He censored plenty of people, and that was sort of left out in what Tucker said there. So this decision to relaunch a show basically signals his desire to remain a major presence in both the media and politics. And uh, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that aside from Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson is probably the most powerful voice inside the right-wing or the right-leaning populist movement. So I don't know if he's going to be able to achieve the same level on, um, of influence on Twitter that he was on Fox News, but it's a very interesting situation. But the decision to post his show on Twitter is an intriguing one. This could be a game-changer. And I'll tell you what, I've been kind of posting some of my commentaries on my Facebook page, at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Maybe I'll just start uh, posting to Twitter as well. I actually have more Twitter followers at Frank Morano than I do Facebook followers. So I don't know why uh, that... Uh, I, I always liked with Facebook that it kind of alerted you once someone that you're following was live. I did feel bad, and you could watch the video that I posted yesterday. A couple of people tried to join the conversation yesterday, almost like callers, but I had all these things that I wanted to rant about that I didn't spend much time talking to callers, or uh, I don't know what you even call them, Facebook users. Maybe I'll uh, schedule something, uh, maybe tomorrow, 
if uh, if the weather's nice, maybe I'll have another one of these Patriot cigars and do another one of these videos tomorrow with less things that I want to talk about and more of an opportunity to answer your questions. If not tomorrow, maybe Saturday morning uh, when Carmine's taking a nap. We'll see. But by opting to go all in on Twitter, Carlson is in some ways kind of partnering with Elon Musk. And uh, this partnership could be very interesting. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be very interesting. I'm eager to see how this works out. It's pretty exciting. 800-848-9222. By the way, Elon Musk stressed last night that Twitter has not signed a deal of any kind with Tucker Carlson and that he hopes other content creators, particularly from the left, will also choose to be content creators on Twitter. I hope so, too. Twitter was at its best when everybody, with every point of view, was putting out their opinions on there, their videos, their content. And that's what it should be. It shouldn't become uh, like Rumble. And that's what I liked about Twitter. Or that's what I do hope to like about Twitter. Let it be the modern-day digital public square where everybody – like talk radio. I mean, there's nothing like talk radio in terms of level of intimacy. But like they say in the movie, a great film, Talk Radio, with Aaron Bogosian – Talk radio is America's last neighborhood. Wouldn't it be nice if Twitter could exemplify some of those best characteristics of talk radio with maybe, I don't know, a little less meanness? All right. Uh, I gave you a lot to ponder there. 800-848-9222. Run, run through some calls. Then we're going to do the $1,000 minute. Jeff is in Jersey City. Hello, Jeff. All right. Quickly, uh, you're out of time. Um, and to, re- to relate to your uh NBA uh, situation with uh, Djokovic and the fans know that whether he's an owner, whether he's a fan, whatever, uh, you you get a ball in, in, in at a basketball game, promptly return it to the player, and the game moves on. Uh, other than that, you're creating trouble. That 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 guy's really, and he should know better. So you were right on that one. And I want to follow up on one thing you said. Coincidentally, you said the last game you watched was um, his, uh, historic in that. Uh, O.J. was taking his cruise down the uh, uh, interstate there in the in the Bronco, and I was a big fan of the Knickerbockers at the time. And this is even even tie this to the conspiracy guy that you had on Frank before. Mm-hmm. In my own way, in my mind, how I support this, that Pat Riley, who um, is kind of my hero, he did he has a unique accomplishment, only man in history of professional sports have two uh, titles in two different sports in one season yet. The Knickerbockers and the Rangers won the title. Well, the Rangers won the Stanley Cup. The Knickerbockers fell one game short. But it's no coincidence. But Pat Riley Pat wasn't Ryan the coach was, of the Rangers back then. It was no, no, he was not. He was not, Frank. Right. But, but what happened was, uh, you understand, you know yourself. You're, you're, you're a smart guy. You could do so many things. Uh, enthusiasm, Frank, is, is infectious. When you bring enthusiasm to an arena, and I believe, you, so it's no coincidence you think that 1994, uh, when Riley was coaching Knickerbockers, and they were making a surge and, uh, and you know toward the title, and all of a sudden the Rangers, and I know Ranger fans, I'm both, and Ranger fans would always say to me, why do the Knickerbockers get so much attention and the Rangers are the stepchild? Well, I says, you know what, start playing hard and get a couple of players. And you know what? They didn't have the greatest personnel, but they won the title. And I, 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 I counted all to enthusiasm, starting with Pat, Pat Riley and his hard 
Rucker, and I'm rooting for Riley right now against the Knicks. I'm rooting for Pat Riley. I hate the new Knicks, and they call them the Knicks. They're in New York, as you know. Where do we get Knickerbockers? That's right. In Knickerbocker Village. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, you said a lot there. 800-848-9222. Joe in Huntington's been holding a while. Hello, Joe. All right. Uh, Isabel in Manhattan's been holding. Hello, Isabel. Hi, Frank. Um, I heard that Bloomberg's mother lived to be 120. So if it's true, maybe you could have the mayor on your show and ask on your program and ask him questions about his mother. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I have, I've met Mayor Bloomberg several times. She, she actually lived to be 102, not 120. But, hey, I'll take 102. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Billy is in Suffolk. Hello, Billy. Hey, what's up, Frank? Quick question. Uh, Rayo's restaurant, Italian restaurant in Manhattan. What do you rate it, and do you think it's worth me fighting for a reservation uh, to uh, get me and my wife in there? Well, who would you be fighting with? Isn't it really hard to get a reservation at Rayo's? Well, no, I know, but I'm saying, like, you say uh, fighting. I mean, how? what's your plan, your game plan for getting this Rayo's reservation? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I heard that it was uh, extremely difficult uh, to, to, to eat there. You have to, like, know the owner. and uh, It's, it's, it's very gonna... difficult, right? Um, the food is terrific. The food is, is very good. The food, there are other Italian restaurants that I think have food that is as good or better, honestly. But the truth is, you're not going there for the food. You're going there for the vibe, right? You look around and you see at one table there's an old school gangster. At another table there's a new school gangster. At another table there's a politician. At another table there's um, a radio talk show host. It's It's such a cool scene over there. That's why you're going for the food. I have only been to the New York one. Actually, I think I might have been in the Las Vegas one, too. So, yeah. I've been to the Vegas one and the New York one. I'll be honest with you. The food in Vegas is just as good. You And you don't have to fight to get a reservation. You don't have to know somebody to get a reservation. So if you're just interested in trying the food, uh, then uh, you're just, I think you could get it. You can go to the one in Vegas or L.A. pretty easily. However, if you want to go there and be part of the scene in New York, which I uh, was very fortunate to be a part of a couple times, the two best strategies that I'd recommend are one, look for a charity event where they're um, auctioning off a table, and uh, that's one. Two is, and both of these guys are pretty easy to become friendly with, become very good friends with either Bo Deedle or Arthur Idala. Bo has a weekly table at Rayo's. I think Arthur has kind of a monthly table at Rayo's. He was kind enough to invite me as his guest one time. Both of those guys, you can you can find a way to befriend them, and if they know you want to go to Rayo's, they'll they'll bring you to one of their tables one of these days. Well, maybe you can help me out with that, Frank. I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you so much, Good. and have a great night. Thank you, Billy. Appreciate that. Uh, last call before the thousand dollar minute. You know, those of you that are holding, I don't want to rush you, Diane, Eric, Rick. Uh, we'll get to you after the thousand dollar minute. Okay. For the rest of you, if you want to try and win one thousand dollars, go and call in right now. At 800-848-9222. If you are the seventh caller to that number, 800-848-9222, you will get an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do that, 
you will be um, $1,000 richer. Pretty cool deal. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. to break free. And um, if you're interested in freedom, I'm betting that's something $1,000 can help with. And uh, that is where we come down this time of the morning, each and every morning, as we do... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host... Frank Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. And believe me, do I have a story about him that I may share later. Uh, let us meet today's contestant, Larry, in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Larry. Hey, Frank. How you doing? I'm well, Larry. Larry, have you heard this contest before? Yes, I have. Okay, great. Uh, so you know how to play, right? Yeah. So yeah. if you're ready, we will uh, go ahead and uh, get started, okay? The timer will begin okay. after I ask you the first question. Ready to go? You got it. Okay. What color are fire engines? Red. What former president was recently sued for rape in federal court? Trump. What former Yankee catcher and World Series winner was also a World War II veteran? What retired general was the first black Secretary of State? Uh, Colin Powell. Name one of the two baseball teams that home run king Barry Bonds played for. Giants, San Francisco who Giants. Was, who was the first leader of the Soviet Union? Oh, God, I'm, uh, first oh man. Uh, Stalin? Ah, uh, no, I'm sorry. He would have liked to be. But uh, the first leader of the Soviet Union was, uh, it was Lenin, or as, uh, as um, oh, okay. you know, as Trump would call Lenin. him. No, Vladimir Lenin. Len- Can I tell you something, Frank? Yeah. I only got in once before, and I want to thank you. You gave me a great story. I brought up the fact that years ago you used to say, uh, vote a lawyer out of office, and you, and then you just you went into a story which I, I've been looking into this guy Tommy Gioli, 
I just appreciated that you 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 know you brought up him and I didn't know anything about him, but anyway. Well, I, I, pr- I first of all thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but um, I will tell you this, and I haven't. I don't know that this has even been reported yet. But I uh, I got word the other day. I haven't spoken to him yet, but I got word just last week that Tommy Gioli is actually now out of prison. And oh, good. I am going, just released in the last week or two, and I am going to try to have his debut interview with me on my Racket Report podcast. And I think uh, he is going to be up for that. He might be listening right now, actually. And uh, I'm yeah. looking forward to that. But that's so nice of you to uh, to mention that and acknowledge yeah. that. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Do I get a little prize? Yes, yes, like I that? do. I'm going to put you on hold. Give okay. Kenneth your information. We're going to give you something, okay? Give Larry something good. That's my kind of listener. He's attentive. He's got a long memory. He says thank you. He's smart. Got up to question six. And uh, lest anyone think that John Lennon uh, got his start as a musician um, performing back in the USSR, the correct answer is not John Lennon, but Vladimir Lennon, or as President Trump would call him, Lenin, as they say. Which, I must say, I'm not sure it is Lenin, but I think that is a great pronunciation. We should all be calling him Lenin. I, I, honestly, I mean, it's worth voting for Trump just to get the Lenin pronunciation. All right. Hey, speaking of pronouncements, big news. It's showtime. In what has become one of the most rumored movie sequels of all time. This guy is back. Hey, these aren't my rules. Come to think of it, I don't have any rules. (laughs) Whether or not you say his name three times, Beetlejuice is returning to movie theaters next year. Warner Brothers has announced that Beetlejuice 2 will be released on the big screen September 6th, 2024, starring Michael Keaton. You know, I know I'm such a sucker for this, and how can the film possibly be good? 20... Uh, you know, I'm, wait a minute, 24, uh, 36 years after the original film, 36 years after the original film, it's going to be so hyped, there's no way it can live up to the hype. None. None. It's going to be uh, coming to America 2 all over again. And I was thinking of that as I saw this headline. Um, what is the longest distance between a film and its sequel? And I don't know. I had always thought that the answer might have been uh, because there's some big lengthy gaps. You have uh, Evening Star in terms of endearment. You had uh, The Hustler and Color of Money. Uh, Obviously, I mentioned Coming to America and Coming to America 2. But 36 years has got to be up there in terms of the largest gap between sequels. Now, of course, I'm going to go see this. I'm sure it will be disappointing, but I have to see it. It's going to be starring Michael Keaton and Jenna Ortega. And um, who's Jenna Ortega? Do you know who she is at all? Yes. Who is she? She is in, she was just in Wednesday on Netflix, which was like an Adams Family sort of oh, take. Okay. I'm which is really good. Uh, so she, and she's obviously not in the first film. No, because she wasn't born at the no. time the first film came and out. And she's been in, she was just in the Scream movie, the last Oh, Scream okay. Movie I didn't too. see that yet either. We're going to have to have Gina Limberopoulos. 
come on the program and give her review of the of the. And she hosted Saturday Night Live a couple of weeks ago. I, well, I, I I haven't. Well, I don't think I've watched uh, Saturday Night Live since Joe Piscopo was was on it. Uh, so I'm excited. Beetlejuice two coming to theaters next year. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to see it when it comes out. Were you a Beetlejuice fan? Yeah, of course. All right. Okay. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you this. So when I came in tonight, Curtis was here. Ah. As usual. Right. And he said, tell Frank I hate him. I hate him more than ever. Oh, please. And then walked out of the room. That's that, all he told me. I that is not accurate. Not accurate at all. By the way, I am still trying to get um, Curtis nominated for a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I have posted this information on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Moranofan. There's a link with all the information. We're going to have to raise some money uh, if Curtis does get selected because, you know, Curtis's finances are not in the best position right now. But um, the radio is a category in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. They have movies. They have uh, recorded sound. They have television. And they have radio. And for some reason, they have live theater. They have sports entertainment even. For some reason, radio has gotten short shrift of late. And I think the last major talk radio star to get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame was Larry Elder. And nothing against Larry Elder. I'm friendly with Larry. He's been a guest on this show. He's running for president now. He's doing some interesting things. But Curtis, in the world of radio, has been far more impactful than Larry Elder has. I would argue. I don't think I don't think I'm going down a limb here. And I think it's crazy that Curtis doesn't have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I'm also nominating uh, John Gambling. So I'm hoping someone else will nominate Curtis Sliwa, uh, Joe Piscopo, maybe someone like Richard Bay, and, of course, posthumously Barry Farber, who should have uh, been in that uh, Hollywood Walk of, uh, on that Hollywood Walk of Fame a long time ago. And uh, John in Brooklyn uh, commented um, that... Uh, Oh, you're meaning me. Um, you're very dumb. Uh, Barry Farber and and the other people, they had nothing to do with Hollywood. Well, they had something to do with radio, and this is a walk of fame that recognizes accomplishments in radio. So I'm hoping people will go to my Facebook page, share it, and consider submitting an application. I think you need a written consent form from the star. Curtis will give you a written consent form. Curtis signs things without even looking at them. You just Yogi Berra used to be like that. There was one instance when Mark Simone and I were friends. He was telling me he used to have, you know, Mark Simone runs with a very elite crowd. And they're at an event. This is years ago, more than 20 years ago. And they're at an event. Yogi Berra is there with Mark Simone and Donald Trump is there. And Yogi tells Mark Simone, you, you know, I'd love to be on The Apprentice. And Donald Trump comes over and says hello to them. And there are all these cameras photographing Yogi Berra talking to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump walks away. And all these people come up to Yogi and they get him to sign the consent form to be on The Apprentice. Because you have to give a, uh, you know, basically consent form that you don't mind appearing on television. And so they walk away. And Yogi says, oh, you know, it was great seeing Donald Trump. I'd really love to be on The Apprentice. And then Mark says, what are you talking about? You were just on The Apprentice. He said, I was? He says, uh, yeah. What did you think those cameras were that were taking your picture and photographing you? He says, I don't know. There's always cameras when I'm around. He says, what about that form you just signed that said you consent to be on TV? And Yogi, and again, 
Mark's relationship with the truth isn't the best, so he could have been exaggerating, but I don't think he was. Uh, Yogi tells him, that's what that was? He says, yeah, what did you think he was saying? He says, I have no idea. Anywhere I go, any room that I go to, people are always asking me for autographs. They just point a piece of paper or a ball or a picture right in front of me. I just sign it. I'm just, so that's how used to signing autographs Yogi Berra was. He didn't even question the consent form. That's how Curtis Lee is. He'll just sign anything, honestly. Um, 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. Let me say hello to Eric in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, Frank. Um, I thought that this guy was going to debunk something. Um, for, forget for, forget for a second that uh, John Brennan and Bill Gates admitted to geoengineering. Um, these two really uh, insane people. Um, all I heard was a lot of like a lot of projection there, and just a lot of the same ham-handed, half-assed explanation for for things that are a lot of a lot of stuff is a, a matter of public record, you know. But um, and they said so. Brennan called it what uh, stratospheric aerosol injection, and they want to dim the sun. Which, if that was that, that's bad enough because that's an extinction level event. The sea life dies, the coral reefs die, the plants in the sea die, the animals die, and then the oceans die, and then the oceans are gone. You know, so I mean, he he conveniently left that out, I guess. I don't uh, know. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you, Eric. By the way, if you uh, if you ever think there's something that um, you want to give feedback on, something I've said, something a guest has said, uh, music we play, please join our Facebook group. We also post the bumper music selections in there. Just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. And we're trying to create an online community where people are mostly nice to one another. And then there's John in Brooklyn who's not nice to anybody. And uh, they communicate about the topics that we cover on this show. And it's a fun group. It's a fun community. And I get a lot out of it. I learn from it. I enjoy the feedback. I enjoy the constructive criticism. And sometimes, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret, I enjoy ticking these people off. And uh, that's kind of that's my Mick Foley, uh, Cactus Jack moment. 800-848-9222-Diane uh, is in New Jersey. Hello, Diane. Hello. I, I just wanted to say about the uh, chemtrails. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, like every day, there's there's chemtrails. There's these. You can see them being sprayed. They spread out, and the beautiful blue sky that the day started out with is gone, and it's like white skies. And probably around the time when you're driving home, when the suns they start very early, and they're still making X's. By the way, uh, the other Diane said I I just saw X's the other day, and um like a, um. You know, it's very disheartening. Every day, there's no blue skies by the evening. And then the sun, when you look at the sun, the sun is just like a blur now. You don't see the shape of the sun. Like when I'm 66, I remember the sun all my life. You know, it, it's like a blur. It, it's like got a haze around it. And you can see like there's like these double tandem planes flying in the sky. And no planes fly in double tandem unless they're like like fighter pilots or something. But there's like these. So what do you, you know, think? You what, do let, you th- what do you think they are? What do I think they are? I think they're spraying to block the sun. These to, these, these nut jobs, you know, like these people who think they want right, to control they're the everything. They're trying to control the temperatures here, you know. And they might be spraying things that are not good for people's health. Because who do you who do you think is responsible for it? Well, did you ever hear Dane Winnington? Have you ever listened to his show? Uh, give me the name again. 
Dane Whittington? I don't believe so. He has... Well, you should. I know you've had that woman, Ilana Freelander, on your show. I heard her on your show, and she's a, like, I'm not a very good, like, uh, you know, like fight, fighter for my point of view. I know my. Oh, point you're doing of view. great. You're doing great. Oh, I will invite you. this um, uh, this uh, Dane Wigington on yeah. the program. That's a great idea. Yeah. I love to show both sides it, of uh, of all these like, issues. If you listen to him, he's like he's such a good speaker, and I mean, just just. Just look up at the sky. You can see them every day. I have like a million pictures. My phone, I, I can't tell you if I have more cat pictures or chemtrail pictures in my phone. Okay? I would have bet you any amount of money <laughs> that this lady was a day, cat lady. Every any day, amount of like, money. I, I, it's like, you know, it's very sad. Like uh, our skies, our beautiful blue skies are not there. Diane, thank you. I have to run. I will reach out yes. to Mr. Wiggington. I appreciate you, you yeah, listening and, and holding. He's, yeah, no, I, that'll yeah, be good for me. You didn't let me talk left. Last time I held, I wanted to talk about breastfeeding. It took all calls from men talking about breastfeeding. Well, okay, you, you want to make a quick comment no. about breastfeeding too? Go ahead. No, I. It's no. It's like the easiest. It's like it's the most handy thing you have to feed your child. It's free. You can make sure your kid is getting good nutrients by eating right when you're doing it. And like, there's all men calling, and they're like, "Well, whatever." And it's a while ago when I held this happened. Well, I, I apologize, I uh, Diane. Okay. Next time you call in, you let. Know, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I had a, I had a like ice uh, like a wound. I just had surgery this morning. Oh. So I had an ice wound, so I was sitting with the ice while I waited for you. I, so Diane, I, I appreciate that. Do, Next you know? time you call in, tell Kenneth that I said that you should be at the front of the line. He had some deal with that other Diane to put her in the front of the line. So there you have it. Uh, by the way, I'm sorry about uh, this Diane surgery. My friend Danielle, also recovering from surgery yesterday, she's probably listening now as well, wishing her the best as well. And uh, her husband, Rich, I know they're going through a lot. All right, uh, 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Breastfeeding, geoengineering, Tucker Carlson, NBA. Any subject is fair game as long as it's 15 seconds or less straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Moreno. It is time now for you to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Neo! Rats and garbage everywhere. Crime at an all-time high. People defecating all over the place. And our idiots... Neil, I'm not hearing you. Rick. Diane and Diane were right. They're not natural patterns in the sky. You got four or five lines in parallel lines, and you have the crosses. I'll send you the pictures. Vinny. How you doing? <clears throat> I was a soldier with the Genovese. I'm 79 years old. Curtis Lee was my second cousin. And you know what? I've been listening. He's the best. You're nothing but a mama Luke. Mama Luke. E. Frank. Yes, uh, Frank, I feel sorry for um, Congressman George Santos. 
Uh, let me tell you something. George Santos uh, saved uh, a, a dog that I knew, Sarmiento, from the Ecuadorian selection. Why don't they bring back the civil defense? And- Eddie! Joe Biden's Rico pinball game opens up today at 9. Stay tuned. Pete. Sizzle moron, sizzle moron. Robert. Accommodation to Sid Rosenberg for playing Depeche Mode on his radio. Thank you. Rusty. Yes. Frank, don't let them, the, the, the Messiah put the bull on you. Them phony balonies. They're only a bunch of two-faces. They don't care for you. They made their money already. You can't trust them. Thank you, Rusty. I appreciate that. Hey, that slams lit on things for today. Tomorrow, we got some fun stuff coming your way. It's Thursday. It's Kill Me Thursday. It's AC Thursday. A lot of other things happening. Frank Morano, good day.